2: With no minimum listenership. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're looking to get started on your own podcast, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm. You know the rules of the game. Yeah. You know the rules of the game. I don't care what color. Can you make me
3: hundred million? Let's talk, talk money. Can you make me that? If you can't make me that... I want to you. talk to you. You shouldn't even
1: get this tape? I got money on my mind. I'm just trying to get some dough. I ain't picking up my lot unless there's money on the phone. Gotta get it on the daily. All I want is dubs. You know what I'm on. I've been chasing after paper. All I know is broad money marathon. Do five years of this and be a millionaire and go on, do what I want to do. Have kids go live
4: my trip and join the games like out here in
5: Texas or struggle for next year. The choice is yours.
6: What's
7: up guys, welcome to the Black Wealth Renaissance Podcast Our goal of this podcast is to normalize black wealth and share helpful resources and tips we believe will be useful in attaining and maintaining generational wealth Please feel free to rate and comment on our podcast, we would love to hear all feedback you have Now, enjoy the show Yo, 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 welcome to the Black Earth Renaissance podcast. It's your boy Jalen, man, one quarter of the Black Earth Renaissance podcast. Just want to say thank you for tuning in and tapping into this special episode of the BWR podcast. What we're going to do is we're going to do a little rewind of the previous 99 episodes that we released in preparation for our 100th episode. So sit back, relax and enjoy some of the most prominent and noteworthy episodes that we have available to date. I would also like to invite you to our YouTube live party happening next week, Wednesday, March 3rd. We'll be having previous guests join us. We'll also be giving out cash prizes and just giving you some updates of the Black Earth Renaissance crew. So be sure to sign up with the link below. You'll see YouTube live party. See you
2: there. What Damn. did that look like? Like, What was it like creating a financial plan? Can you give people some insight on that? Like. Sure
6: can, and this is going to be so dope because people think that things have to be complicated, and really, my expertise is in simplicity. I believe in the art and science of keeping things simple, and something that I don't normally tell people on these podcasts, this will probably be my first time sharing it, and I think as I get more comfortable in myself and my story, I'm willing to share more and more, but my dad was a gambler, and my mom is an alcoholic and they're incredible people don't get me wrong they made me everything that i am today but they also demonstrated some traits and habits that made me started thinking about things in a different way and i say that because keeping money in my house was not an easy thing not only was i saving it but i had to hide it right i had to make sure that people weren't stealing it you know and that just is what it is. Don't feel no type of way about my parents. Everybody has their own struggles and, you know, it is what it is.
7: Yeah, it, it makes you who you are. Like, <laughs>
6: exactly. That's, your
7: story. that's yeah. how you learn to do what you do.
6: Exactly. And so I was like, all right, how I see that my parents know how to make money, but they don't know how to keep money. What can I do to keep money? And when I say that I created a financial system, here's what I did. I got a composition notebook. You can get a composition notebook at the dollar store for a dollar. And what I would do is I would write down the amount of money that I had at the start of every day. So my dad gave me an allowance. It was $20 every two weeks. And so if once my dad gave me an allowance, I would write down, okay, today is Monday. On Monday, I'm starting off with $21. And if I went to the candy store and spent 25 cents, I would write minus 25 cents. And if my auntie came over and I'm like, auntie, can I have a dollar? And she gave me a dollar, I would write down plus $1. And I would keep track of the amount of money that I made throughout that day. And then at the end of the day, I would tally it up and see how much do I have. And then the next day I would start it all over again. And what that allowed me to do was to see how transactions will impact your wealth before you know it, the everyday person doesn't know this. They go around swiping their credit cards. but at 10 years old, I realized all those transactions add up quick because within, this is how I would look at it within three pages. I could go from $20 to $30 within three days, right? If I'm focused, but if I'm not focused, who knows what'll happen. And so that's how I created my first financial system when I was 10 years old. And what you focus on will flourish. So three years later, I had more money than everybody else. In my I said my immediate family, but really my extended family as well. I was able to save up my first $1,000 just from flowing my focus to my money and staying, you know, keeping that top of mind.
7: Mm. Hey, man, she's spitting some hot shit right here.
6: Man, I'm
7: like, she got me amped up because the foresight you had at 10 to know the decisions that I make with the little bit of money that I have is going to affect me in the long haul, like, that's so dope. So, and that's why I said, don't be embarrassed about your story because that makes you who you are. You wouldn't have been able to figure that out if that's not the environment that you had grew up in. And like a lot of us come from the same environment. So a lot of us can't even judge you because it's (laughs) our story, too. So it really kind of make us feel a little bit more relatable. But like, damn, that's like so empowering because at 10, you was able to say, okay, I'm going to just keep a little debit system of what I'm doing. And now in three years, I'm able to stack up and really I'm good. Like at 13, I know you probably had more money than every kid on the block. Maybe the ones that's not selling drugs.
6: I definitely did. And the one thing I want to point out there is I was accountable. I didn't say, well, my dad is supposed to provide it for me. My Mm -hmm. mom is supposed to provide it for me because I realized I can want them to do it. But what happens when they don't? Who is that going to impact? Me, right? I can want them to do what they're supposed to do or what I think they should do all day long. But if they don't, it's going to impact my life. And I don't want anybody to have the power to create my life for me. I want to be the one that creates it for myself. And I realized that at 10 years old and ever since then I've practiced radical responsibility and accountability.
8: So once you saved up that money, how did your family look at you differently?
6: Well, they didn't because I mean I've been the one. <laughs> I was born the one, you know. <laughs> the chosen like, one. From the womb. My mom was like, Who is this girl? Like, how is she like this? And my dad is like, This girl is special. And so they already knew what was up. It was like, all right, you know, let's go start her bank account, I guess. Like, you know, and my family friend took me to go start a bank account. And, you know, I went through high school, got a job while I was in high school, working at the University of Chicago. And I would work the weekends. Saturday and Sunday, I would pretty much work like 12-hour days because I wanted to, you know, build my bank account. I'm thinking I'm going to go to college one day. I want to have money in the bank. So by the time I went to college, I had a lot of money in the bank, but this is something that I realized I couldn't have my money and spend it too. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I'm like, I have so much money. This is great. You know, I've never seen this much money before. I want to go spend it. And I was like, wait a minute, but if I spend it, I'm not going to have it anymore. And so I realized that lesson while I was very young as well. You cannot have your money and spend it, too, when you're on the come up, when you're trying to build something, while you're building that foundation. It doesn't work that way.
2: Like You really got to move with intention. Like you had mentioned it earlier, you got to move with intention and really hold yourself accountable when it comes to finances. Because if you're not doing those two things, like you, you said, opinion. you were able to make start saving at 10 because you just started paying attention.
6: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: Everybody don't pay attention to their money. When you pay attention, it's like really be like, damn, my decisions, that's really what's causing my problems at the end of the day. it start like changing <laughs> your perspective.
6: It really does.
3: And I can really appreciate how you went from understanding that idealistically, yeah, it would be nice if the money came from my parents, if my dad or if my mom could give me the money, but at the end of the day, it's my life and I'm responsible yeah. for making sure that I stay good. And I kind of want
7: to go back and touch on another point in your story that kind of stuck out to me. It was whenever you say, you know, you kind of engulfed yourself in the books to Mm -hmm. escape your reality. A lot of times we let our reality consume us because we feel like there's no out. We feel like, okay, this is what I'm used to. And I know like us, we preach about, you know, controlling what you see on your timeline. But at a young age, you controlled what you saw in real life by turning to books to say, okay, this is my way out. This is how I can start educating myself. And this is how I can really just start seeing more of what's out there. Because Mm -hmm. we all know the old saying, if you want to keep something from a Black person, put it in a book. But you was able to figure out, you know, whenever I get into these books, I'm able to see much more than just the South Side of Chicago. I'm able to go to Atlanta. I'm able to go to New York. I can go to L.A. all from the power of these pages.
6: Mm-hmm, absolutely. And that's why I like to share, like, what was the thing that gave me a window? Because we're all born into a society. And, you know, it's like John Locke says, you're a tabula rasa. You're a blank slate. And by the time you grow up, people have been writing on you. They.
0: Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba
6: writing their stories, they've been projecting onto you before you had the power to think is do I want to take this in or not so you know by the time you're five you already have been inculcated with a mindset that somebody else has poured into you so how do you start to get power over your own mindset and reading is a really good way to start opening up yourself and being intentional about channeling your mind to what you want to take in because Your mindset is the key. It's the foundation to everything else that comes after because you're only going to take action that is consistent with what you think and believe. You're not going to consistently take actions that are not in alignment with what you believe.
3: And you know, I really agree with that. I feel like that's so heavy what you said in there because of the fact that like those underlying, like you said, with people being a slate and being written on and impressionable on the way growing up, it's like, you don't even know some of the time why you believe some of the things you believe. You just go with it. Then mm-hmm. you yeah. never think about it if you've never given yourself the opportunity to be like, well, hey, you know, question it. Why do I think that way? Mm-hmm. Why do I think that every time I get paid on payday, I'm supposed to go spend a lot of it and celebrate on myself? Different stuff like that. That type of mentality can be indoctrinated into you.
6: Absolutely. And you can indoctrinate it right out. And right. the way that you start to do that, you don't have to know how. You just couldn't start picking up a book and exploring new things and automatically expansion starts to take place.
2: Brother Dre, man, with wanting to see brothers and sisters win, I just kind of want to go in like some different ways. I know you've helped us a lot on our journey, like when it came to just like monetization, making business simpler. So I guess what I want to ask you is like, what are some things you see like whenever people trying to start a business that you think like a common holdbacks?
9: Common holdbacks for most people in business. They do too much shit at one time, and they don't want to hear no about it. <laughs> too much at one time, they don't want to hear no. So we hear about the whole seven income streams thing. It, here's the first thing. It's not seven self-employed, self-employed streams, mm. right? Nowhere says self-employed. It says seven income streams, mm-hmm. right? So, so one could be stocks, one could be mobile notary, one could be podcaster, one could be teachers, you, you know what I'm saying? So, the biggest part is getting people to slow down their brains so they don't feel that they're minimizing their ambition. They're just organizing their ambition. That's the toughest thing I think is by far. The second is probably people underprice. I think underpricing, but the first thing is too many self-employed ventures at one time. That's it by far.
7: And I could definitely agree with you. Because even on our journey, I know that was something that we had to kind of, like, understand is, like you told us on the first podcast, you got to slow down and speed up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we actually had to figure out and focus in and hone in on one thing at a time. Because even as a group, we still have to remain focused to one goal. You want to be a rifle and not a shotgun.
9: I like that. And not to dive all into what we spoke about. But that thing that y'all did made y'all the most money so far.
2: Nah, facts. <laughs> facts. <laughs> and it kind of changes some of the trajectory of the way we doing things. just like a different way to approach business. Just because, like you said, for one, that underpricing thing, that's something you definitely always got to look at, especially like as a new entrepreneur, just an entrepreneur in general. Because like people will try to devalue, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. if you let it, people will devalue. And if you don't know the value for yourself, like, you're not going to receive what you feel like you should out of the situation.
9: Mm-hmm. Bingo, bingo. And if it's too cheap, people won't take it seriously either. Yeah. So, yeah, man, having a fair price, it, it has multiple purposes.
8: And, you so- know, that's crazy. I just wanted to see Andre, how would you say is the best way to figure out the right price for your products or service? What is the best way to price it?
9: It's going to be some trial and error up front, but I would ask some trusted people, what would you pay for this?
7: Testing the market.
9: What would you pay for this? Don't ask people without any money. Everybody is not your clientele. Everyone can't afford you, and that is fine. All right? So- us as Black people, to be okay with not everybody being able to afford our services at this current time. We have free stuff for the people who aren't there yet, or for the people who just don't want to spend money on it. But ask people, what would you pay for this? And do what y'all did. Y'all got an outside advisor, being me. We have a rapport, so that was, you know, on the house. We help out each other. But pay an outside third party to give you a price as well.
2: Mm, somebody experienced.
9: That's no one experience who you say, hey, look, here's what I'm working on. What do you think a fair price is? Bring in the third party.
3: And I like, I like that. that you said, I like also that you said not cheap people. Like, not going specifically just to, so like, if you're, you know, yeah. in a setting or something like that and, like, all your friends is broke. Like, me and all my friends was broke. we yep. obviously not going to be able to spend no good money on something, but that doesn't mean <laughs> yeah. that other people wouldn't be able to or they wouldn't be willing to meet that price point.
9: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a clientele out there. We just got to figure out who the clientele is for us.
2: Mm-hmm. Your friends and family definitely is usually not Oh, your man, get, nah, get them client. out of
9: here. Get them out of here, all the way out of here. With love, with love, <laughs> but they, they, they usually aren't it. And that's fine, too. See, here's the thing. We just got to get okay with this stuff. Mm-hmm. We just got to be okay with it. There's a lot of people out here.
2: Yeah. There's a world full of billions of people. You can't get hung up on one or two.
9: <laughs> a lot of people, man. A lot of people.
2: If
7: you have the right group of 1,000 people, you can make a whole lot more money yep. than the wrong group of 50,000 people.
9: Mm-hmm. Any day of the week. Every day of the week, man. It's not always about the numbers, how many followers. it helps. but how many people are what's it called the, uh, your first 100 fans, your first 1,000 fans? It's a book about it. Erica always talks about it. But your first people who you get rocking with you. They will be your spokesman and spokeswomen slash cheerleaders to get the next thousand, hundred thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand. I'm a living example of it. You just got to go all in with those first hundred or a thousand.
2: So I kind of want to ask you, what's like some tips for like somebody that's on the ground floor trying to get to the first person? Like what's something that they could do to, you know, try to start reaching out? Because a lot of times, you know, our community. We just talked about it. Like we want the people around us to support us, but that's not necessarily our audience. Yeah. Like how, what's some tips to getting in front of that audience?
9: Get around other people who you aren't friends with and family with. (laughs) If it's virtually get on people's podcasts, I'm a big advocate of being on people's podcasts, especially in the beginning because podcasts, even though it is coming so popular, it's still underserved and it's still not as popular it's just (laughs) going to get bigger, right? So get on someone's podcast shit. I would even pay if I really knew, I would even pay someone to get on their podcast. Mm-hmm. I would I would even pay someone to get on the podcast. Right. Second thing is YouTube. Create a freaking YouTube channel. You can go from having no YouTube channel to having a phone and be on YouTube in six minutes or less.
7: Thanks. Especially Thumb- if you got a Google account.
9: Hello. Thumbnail later. Avatar later. You could go from phone to YouTube in six minutes or less. Right. So I will start with those few things right there. Your Instagram page. Make a good video. Make some good videos. And there's something else you could do. You can start a podcast.
2: Mm, that's a networking hack.
9: Dude, because people will talk to you who usually won't talk to you, <laughs> right? Because you have a podcast. You could DM someone the same questions you would ask them on the podcast. Me DM look at you like you're crazy on the podcast. They'll say, sure, let's set it up.
7: Thanks. Yeah. That's facts because we, we live in legends <laughs> of that one. Once we started our page and got our podcast rolling, there were some people like we had reached out Whenever to them before. We,
2: was, we were some individuals. A certain few of us had reached out to different people. And, you know, we kind of got brushed off. But then once you started, like, with your podcast, you know, you could provide value to them in a certain way. The conversation is different.
7: Yeah, especially, and I like how you said that. We didn't get upset about it. We were like, how can we provide value? What do we need to do to get these people to acknowledge us? I'm not going to be mad that you didn't say. You obviously saw that your time was more valuable than talking to me. So mm-hmm. what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that next time you speak to me, Hello. I'm giving you some value.
9: Mm-hmm. And it works. <laughs> yes. Works like and a token. It fam, it's one of the best slow calls. I mean, like now I'm on a thousand dollar camera. Y'all got fancy stuff like now, like we're kind of popping, right? But you don't need all this stuff. A lot of people started with a cell phone.
7: Less with their than
9: Literally a cell phone, not even Zoom, just a cell phone. And it just recorded the call. So yep. start with what you got, man. Start with what you got and keep on frigging going. But start.
8: That's mm. definitely true. We started with a phone. Our podcast started with just the phone. It was a phone call recorded. Mm. It really was. See that on anchor, y'all can hear it, and it sounds like ass. <laughs>
7: <laughs> I nice like, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it though, like because Mars. and this is one thing why I like to speak to you, my brother. We can keep it real and be hundred percent honest. Like yep. you have to start where you're mm-hmm. at though. I don't wanna make it all pretty and no, just get it off the ground and then start gaining traction. Once you start gaining traction, you can make it pretty later.
9: Totally. Totally. Nah, man, get the ball rolling. Get the ball rolling because you'll build self esteem. You'll build confidence, you'll build traction, and you'll just be able to check something off the list. That's why I'm so big on setting like small or medium-sized goals and having a one-week deadline, maybe two-week deadline, because you build the momentum. Oh, shoot, like I got something done. I can physically check that off the whiteboard. I can physically erase that, or draw a line through it. You're like, oh, shoot, I'm doing something. Mm-hmm. I feel better about myself. So yeah, it works.
7: And I kind of want to go back to what we were talking about right at the beginning with people doing too much. Just for Mm -hmm. if it's someone who's listening right now and they're like, you know, maybe I do have too many things going on. How would you or how would you suggest someone going about figuring out what's the most important place to start?
9: If you need money, you need to only if you have five streams of income and you are broke or semi broke, you need to kill four of those streams. Mm. what is making you money not what do you like the best not what you're the p word passionate about mm. what is making you money and that's what you focus on up until that stream gets you five to ten thousand dollars a month coming in at least everything else got to go for now everything else got to go
3: i really love that brother j touched on that because like i think that even his industry especially is like a great example of that like a lot of people they want to do different other stuff because, like, it looks fancy or it seems like it'll feel fun to be doing real estate or to be doing, you know, yeah. trading or this different stuff. My man's made a bag off stamping the paper, just being a notary. I ain't got to be, you know, Facts. fancy, extra fancy with it or nothing, but this gets me paid.
9: Facts. A 14-year bag.
3: Mm. 14-year bag, recession-proof bag. Yo. Go ahead and talk right. your stuff on the Brother George.
9: <laughs> Facts. What's, here's the thing. Once you have money coming in, you're able to then mentally explore other options. When you're broke, your mind can't be going 20 different places, man. Like you are broke. Like, accept the thing you gotta do. Accept the fact you're fucking broke. Let's just sit on that for a little while, right? I have things that I'm doing. What is bringing in money? What has the most income potential for now? Then when you get to a certain point, we could deviate and we could expand. We could hire in subcontractors, BAs, all that good stuff but you need that money coming in. Let's stop all this mess. Stop.
7: Hey man, my brother over here dropping some damn bars.
9: <laughs> like it, it's important
2: though, cause like, it's easy. Cause I mean, like, think about it. You see it on the internet so much. It's like, it's easy to get caught up in it, especially if like you're a person, you know, you're real tapped into this space. You're real tuned into a lot of the different things that people are saying. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's the Instagram effect. You know, you feel like you behind because you don't have that seven right now. And they talking about that seven. But like Brother Dre is saying, you gotta build one before you can even think about number two because like your focus, whenever you divert your focus all over the place, you only putting a little bit of effort everywhere versus putting a lot of effort in the thing that can give you the most. You can't avoid the difficult parts of your story. Like nothing's gonna ever be just all a cakewalk whenever it comes to this entrepreneurship thing. And the way you were going about building your business you knew it was going to take some more sacrifices to really get the things done that needed to be done because you didn't come into it with the mentality of like, I'm going to just hustle up this. I'm trying to build the system from day one so that I'm not going to be the person doing the work. Yeah. I just, it's interesting, man. People need to think about that one.
10: It's the only way to build a business because my staff now knows, and it feels amazing saying staff. It really does. They now know, if there's ever a client that needs to talk to me directly, that means somebody's getting fired. Because there are seven other people for that client to speak to before they ever have to speak to me, period. But that's from the system that was built out. I wasn't just building a system for my business, I was building a system where I could be a business owner. You know, as a business owner, once you reach a certain level within your business, people should not be talking to you, period. You know, you should only be talking to who you want to talk to. Or if it's like a big team, like I have a, a meeting with a brokerage on Tuesday via Zoom. The guy has 17 brokerages. That's a conversation I'm going to take. But I'm not going to take the one real estate agent. If you say, oh, that's switching up. Blah, blah blah, No, it's not. It's valuing your time. I do not hire salespeople, or account managers for me to have to do the work. Because if I have to do the work, why don't I just make more of the money? I'm not going to do both. So which one is it? And it's in, I'm telling you, in the beginning, it is such an entitlement thing people have. They're like, oh, you done changed, blah, blah, blah. You done switched up. You think you're too good now. I'm like, in reality, you were the same person clowning me when I brought this to you. You were the first person I made the offer to. When I was down bad in January, you were the first person I offered this service to for $300 and you still said no.
11: Mm-hmm.
10: How am I supposed to act? You know, and it's not out of spite. I just leveled up. There's levels to this shit, period. And it's never from an egotistical standpoint. It's from a time standpoint. And I do not have the time to be dealing with other people when I've hired people to do such tasks. You don't order from Amazon and talk to Jeff Bezos. He's not packing your bags for you. You know, he's not checking the warehouses. He's not management there. He has no idea what's even going on in his business. At least I know what's going on. He just goes and collects the check. And that's where we all need to be, though. Period. So,
2: Gary, I, I want to hop into it more because, like, you're talking, like, with the different positions that you've built out and all that. So, as a person creating this business, how do you start the process of, like, really delegating out these different tasks to these people?
10: First, all right, so if I had to do it all over again, let me just say I would do it like this. I would do everything for the first You know three months until you see until you have a little extra money to pay someone 800 bucks a month or 600 bucks a month or even 400 bucks a month consistently of course so i would do everything myself and then from there i would just delegate one task just one task to that person that you cannot stand and then just slowly add on and then when they're at their breaking point you know it's time to hire because if they're at their breaking point that means you have more business that you've brought in you know what i'm saying So then, or they'll tell you when it's time to hire. So did that answer the question? Yeah.
2: Like that's a good timing point to do it. But like, well, well, I guess more so what I'm asking is like, what would be the steps they need to take to like start creating the roles for people? Like, you know, because sometimes in our businesses, whenever we're doing the work ourselves, we don't really know exactly how, like you're doing all the different parts, like you mentioned. How to put it out there for somebody
10: else to do it? Okay, so you need something called an SOP, which is a standard operating procedure. So, can I share my screen right now? Yes, sir. All right, I'm just gonna bring you guys and show you exactly what an SOP is. Let me pull it up though first, cause I got some sensitive information going Listen on. Listen to on the
2: podcast audio. I'm gonna need you to go to YouTube to see this one. This is a YouTube exclusive part
10: right here. Definitely is. You guys see my screen? Yeah. So onboarding, onboarding is one of the most tedious things in my job. So what you have to do is create an SOP. This is just to onboard a client and get their account done. It's like just set up. It has nothing to do with the process after. So what you need to do is make sure you write out your process one step at a time. All right. So, so basically once the intake form is complete, check, check to make sure the Airtable client roster has been fully updated, blah, 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 create the account and then every step to create the account. And GHL to go high level, that's the CRM we use. Settings, this is everything you need to check in the settings, all right? Every single detail that you need to do because this task right here is not a profitable task. So once you do this enough and once again, you're making enough money in your business to outsource this task that may take you an hour or two per client to do, Then you need to outsource it. So, but you need an SOP first. So you start with the SOP. So when, as you're doing this yourself, because I don't want to get off tangent with the question, as you're working within your business yourself, wearing every hat, every move you make for whatever the process is in your business needs to be written exactly like this. Like as you goes so in detail how to do everything. So when you now do have the income or revenue. To hire, you don't have to sit there and train. You're like, hey, listen, onboarding is taking up too much of my time. I need to hire somebody to do the onboarding process. Let me write out, the, let me get the SOP to them so they know what to do step by step. And let's just say you just hire one person to do that. And then you're still wearing, now instead of wearing 10 hats, you're wearing nine hats. So now you're like, okay, um, client communication. Now this is where I have all my clients. You guys are really in here right now. So now it's like, all these clients right now, right? You think I could talk to them all by myself with problems and complaints? No. So now, what's the SOP? Whenever someone asks me a question, like, who just talked to me today? Let's see. Margaret. So, me and Margaret, we don't get along too well. So this is one of the people I have to handle. You know what I'm saying? So like, is there any way to export or copy all the contact info? Or conversations from the homeless leads, so it doesn't matter what that actually means. She's just asking.
12: If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's,
10: can she download her leads? Mm-hmm. This is a question that would be an SOP because you have to build that list. So what I did was, I've done this a while ago already, I would literally record me downloading the CSV file for her, and I would name it, downloading CSV from client accounts. And you see how I'm just building the blueprint of the business on how to do things?
2: Yeah, so now, you go step by step. Like you did it, and then you recorded it, you documented it, so then they can someone can repl- replicate it. Exactly.
10: And that's how you just do it. And all, but at the end of the day, you can't think of when you're going to delegate. You just need the business to delegate tasks. You know what I'm saying? You can't have that. You have to, one, I did everything in my business by myself from when I started learning in Columbia, everything. So you need to always know your business better than anyone you hire. But it's not just that. You need to be able to elaborate your business and walk them step by step for everything as well. I'm gonna bring you into one more gym. So once again, you guys, if you need support, like a support channel, use Basecamp. Daily tasks, use Asana. This is where you have Asana. Asana is basically an online to-do board. This is for outsourcing and stuff like that. This is what I use. We keep everybody updated right here. If you want to do actual videos for your staff, which is what I do all the time, and then I I handwrite it as well. Here you go. Quick look inside accounts. Ads training. How to set up pixels, you know, onboarding. How do you find your integration keys? You see, this is how you build a business and you stop hustling. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is, as a community, all they do is sell us is on they say, become an entrepreneur. Have your own time. When you're an entrepreneur, you have no freedom to do anything. It's impossible because when you're building a business, you work more on your business and you're giving 12, 14, 16, 18 hours a day to your business. The reality of the situation is that you're just self-employed at your own business. Period. That's not a scalable method. You always need to think in terms of scalability, such as Facebook. my Facebook marketing. It is a scalable business, because it's a simple process. We generate clients through Facebook ads. Why do we generate clients through Facebook ads? Because Facebook ads, we can measure how much it costs per appointment, and mm-hmm. how much does it cost from that appointment for someone to become a client, which is around, for it costs us $150 for someone to become a client.
8: Mm-hmm.
10: So what that means is every 150 I spend, I will have a new client that will pay me at least 500, well, now it's $797. Pretty
11: Still, good ROI.
10: The, number, the numbers make sense. <laughs> exactly. But this is how you become a business owner. A hustler is going to say, yo, it's like the dude on the block. He's just trying to sell hats. He doesn't know who is who bought hats from him in the past. He doesn't have a follow-up system for the dude he sold hats to. The crackhead just standing there on the corner asking for change rather than figuring out, yo, who's the dude that gave me the dollar last week? How often does he come to the store? Maybe he'll give me a dollar once every two weeks. If I could find 20 people like that, I might be all right for the week to eat.
8: Man, that's huge. That's really huge in building a, in a business and entrepreneurship is to know your numbers and know your data. Know how many people come to your store are your customers or use your service. How many people that come step foot into your store? Like just knowing the data helps you build out your business significantly.
2: Could you kind of like give like a part of the blueprint for scalability? Like, I know you mentioned some percentages with your mom. Like you said, only 25%
8: of
7: both of
2: your, huh?
7: 20 and 30% of your profit is what your employees should be taking.
2: Yeah.
4: Yeah. So scalability, hire. I feel like if you're making $5, spend one on hiring. So I always, this is my philosophy. For people who don't feel like they're ready or they don't know when to hire or they don't have enough money because hiring is going to increase your money. So I always start off with, write every single thing you do on the left-hand side. So create a list, write every single thing that you do, whether it's wake up, workout, go to sleep, eat, answer emails, package orders, inventory, whatever you do from the morning to sun, from sunup to sundown, write on the left-hand side. Things that can be done by other people, write that on the right-hand side. And when you start realizing you're juggling so many different things, you'll start realizing that you're literally holding yourself back. So for me, I like to work out, I like to run, I like to, I like to do all types of stuff, right? That's, that's my personal self. So obviously someone can't go run for me, someone can't eat for me. So those things will stay on my left-hand side. But when it comes to answering emails, booking calls, creating calendars, that's literally something that can be taught. And a lot of times we don't have systems in place. So anything can be taught as long as it's a system, right? Mm-hmm. So packaging orders. You're not the only person who can make a wig, boo-boo. You're not the person who do a sew-in. Like it's cute. It sounds special. We love it, but you're not the only person who can do that. I'm not the person who can run an ice cream shop. I'm not the only person who can answer email. I'm, y'all not the only people who can do a podcast, right? It sounds great. We love to think we're just one of a kind, but you're, we're really not that special when it comes down to it. So anything that we can do, we can train somebody else to do it. The minute you know how to do it, put that in the system, write it down, hire somebody and say, this is exactly what I did. I know it works because I've already done it. So same with me. I learned how to make the ice cream. I was in there chopping, rolling it up, cupping it, hey, going to some blah, blah, blah. The minute I know how to do it, I tell my staff, Trish, you're never in here. Oh, because I already learned how to do it, so I'm telling you what works. Like, I'm showing you exactly what works. So whenever my staff tries that too. well, we were in here hot. I was in here 16 hours a day for 30 days straight. I know exactly what you're going through. But at the same time, it's a system. This is what's proven to work. It's proven time and time again. And that's our job if we're trying to scale, is to just find what works, what doesn't,
8: Fix it, put it in the system, hire. That's it. Hmm. I really want to get on to uh, differentiation. I think that's something huge, especially with starting a business, is like you said, we're not the only podcast. You're not the only ice cream maker. There's other people that do this in the same industry. So I think I think a huge part of when you're starting a business is differentiation. And can you speak on that maybe even to your ice cream shop and how y'all are different from other ice cream shops? Yeah,
4: absolutely. It's funny you said that because We're literally on the same block as a staple ice cream place here in town. They've been around since before I've been born. So at first we were so nervous, like the competition, what are we gonna do? We were terrified, so we overlooked our location for at least eight months before we finally circled back around onto it. And we're different because, or first of all, I had to learn like there's room for everybody at the top, you know? And traffic attracts traffic, shopping attracts shopping. So if there's people there, there's going to be people here, you know? So if we're all in the same area, there's enough money, customers to go around. So what makes us different from this staple ice cream shop that we grew up to love in my town was that we are based more so for millennials. And that goes back to your business plan. Knowing who your target audience is what sets you apart. Ice cream is ice cream at the end of the day. So for us, it's like we're charging more expensive. We're charging high price upscale ice cream. And that's how we label with So we're an upscale ice cream shop, And we write the name on the ice cream, our customer services of Chick-fil-A, you know, we're the target of the Walmarts, you know, so our customer service. So it's just offering those little things that you can do for your business that's going to set you apart. A lot of times we think, well, everything has to be donations, 25, 30% is going to proceeds are going to like, you know, we get so carried away with that. We think that we have to come up with all these extravagant things when it starts with customer service, making your customers feel welcome making your customers feel valued. You guys, you're speaking to an audience of people that can relate, right? Some podcasts are very cut and dry and it's like, blah, 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 you know? So I always tell people, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Okay. You don't got to do somersaults and back handsprings in your business. You really don't. You just have to find what works for you, what works for your customer. So the minute I can talk directly to my customer, I want, it's not about what they're doing. It's just, you're different because you are, you know, you, you offer that value to your audience, so you know, who you're talking to. So really, that's the only thing that you got to work on to touch yourself apart. Because, hell, we're ice cream just like their ice cream. But why are we busy, too? Because we upscale customer service is great.
7: And I kind of want to ask you, so like, whenever you're getting ready to launch this or even getting ready to launch this new venture, what made you say, OK, I want to do ice cream? How would you come to that conclusion and really say, this is what I want to do?
4: I honestly never even liked ice cream growing up. I didn't like it at all. Um, I was that kid where whenever my mom would say, we're going to go out for ice cream and she'll take us to like Sonic or something or Dairy Queen, I just wanted a foot long hot dog. I didn't want ice cream. I wanted a hot dog and that was it. So really was, I was, I had an online boutique and I was trying to grow my business. So I was trying to travel and meet influencers all the time. So that was tricky. So then I was like myself and my manager were like, we're going to start trying to build you up as an influencer. So I started trying to do that. I probably had like 10K at the time. I went to California, try rolled ice cream. I wanted to try rolled ice cream. I told my manager while I'm there, book me to try rolled ice cream because I just really want to try it. I think I was out there for like some BT stuff as a micro influencer. I was invited to maybe one or two parties out there, a few influencer friends. And so a rolled ice cream place, they're like, okay, yeah, we'll have her. She has to post on Instagram and Snapchat. We'll pay her like $30. So I was like, cool. I'll go try it. Got paid a little something. Probably spent that in Uber just getting there, but whatever tried their old ice cream and I posted on Instagram and everyone's like, wow, where's this at? Because I just remember seeing it on Instagram. Like I didn't know anything really about it. And then I went to Texas because I actually kind of liked it. I'm like, wow, I've never liked ice cream. but This is kind of good. Like, okay. Went to Texas um, the week after with my family. It was like, y'all got to try this. We stood in a long line and my mind starts to wonder, like just always being in business, like, wow, the lines were long. The first place, the lines were long at the second place. Like people are really waiting for this, you know? And so then I posted again and the girl seen it and was like, where are you at? I'm like, well, I was in California. She was like, well, where are you at now? Cause it just looks so good. I seen the last post. I was like, oh, I'm in Texas. And she was like, well, that looks so good. I'm pregnant. I just want to try it. And I was like, well, we should just open one. We laughed it off. Ha! Ah! Very next day, we were like, well, wait, I'm serious if you're serious. And she was like, ha ha, no, seriously. And then we, LOL. Then we we're like, well, wait, no, I'm serious. So that night I went into the hotel room I think it was my birthday, two, three years ago, I went in the hotel room. It was my mom in the room with me, my little brother, and my cousin. My brother grew up in the same environment as me. He's not really like an entrepreneur person, but he just kind of like, you know, whatever is whatever. My cousin, she didn't grow up necessarily with me, so her mindset is like really, you know, suspicious. You don't really know. So I was in the room with those three, and I asked my mom, and I'm glad I was in the room with these three people, or at least these two people at the time, because if it was three people who were like, nah, don't do it, i probably been like, oh, okay, yeah, you're right. But because I was room, at the very moment with my mom, she was like, yeah, what do you have to lose? My little brother was like, well, you could. People were really standing in that line. And so that's all I thought about the rest of the night. I didn't even want to go out for my birthday and enjoy Texas. I wanted to sit in that room and really think about it. Very next day, I got back in town. Got, the girl and I met, and we hit the ground running and got the loan and everything. And came So up how, how old were you whenever this happened? I was 23. 23 okay. or 24. Yeah,
7: 23. That's hard. That's hard. Thank Thank so, you. like you said, you write out the business plan and then you get prepared to launch. When do you launch? Did you launch like around summertime?
4: We launched a year later. Anything that could possibly have went wrong with the brick and mortar went wrong. We didn't know anything about that. We didn't know how we were gonna get the money. We went around shopping for locations, writing checks that our ass couldn't cash. And I'm the mouthpiece, right? So my business partner, she's really sweet. I'm like the finesser, I'm the like, you're not gonna talk to me like, I don't know. Even if I don't know, you gotta just carry yourself with confidence, right? So I'm going around negotiating prices and got a goddamn pot to piss in, right? Ain't have any money, nothing. But I'm talking like, I know we're gonna get it. So we found the right price, just negotiating. Well, this place in this area, and I know this area says this, this area says that. The price over here, the audience over here, the foot trackers over here is terrible. So why could you like doing all that? Didn't have any money. And we came up with a business plan and I, this is a crazy story, you guys. If you really want something, go get it. Because I called a loan officer for a micro-lending company because a lot of times people think you have to go to the bank. But when you're a startup, because we weren't a franchise, when you're a startup, banks don't typically like to fund you because you're a liability, right? I mean, you're, you're a liability. They don't want to fund you. So there's places like micro-loans and angel investors who are designed to invest in startups. I found one. And a lady who was supposed to be helping me, she was supposed to be my loan officer, a signed loan officer. She just kept kind of pushing me off on the back burner, not really paying me any mind. And I subscribed to their email list, and I got a letter saying that they had an event coming up. It was an eight-hour event. My business partner at the time, she was pregnant. She was about to pop any second, so she couldn't make it. Do you know I sat in this event for eight hours? And at the very end, the CEO came up, and he introduced himself. He told everybody, thank you for coming. And he dismissed us, and I seen him talking to somebody. And I walked up to him. and I was like, "I need to talk to you." And he was like, "Okay, well, I have reps over here. So and so can help you." And I was like, no, "No, no, she's been putting me in the back burner for three weeks now." He was like, "Okay," and he was talking. He tried to push me aside. So he was talking. I was like, "Well, your company's starting to look bad, to be honest." And I said that in front of the guy he was talking to because why? His reputation's on the line now. So how are you going to handle this? So he looked at me and was like, "Well, here's my card. You know, let's set something up. Let's do coffee at 7 a.m. this day." I got my business partner. We met up with him 7 a.m. that day. I think it was literally two days later. Like he acted quick because now your reputation's on the line. All these people's right here. And I wasn't going to cause a scene, but respectfully, your reputation is looking bad right now. So we met up and we pitched ourselves and he was so shocked. That man found us the money literally four days later. So, yeah. and fast forward, a year later, now I'm the speaker at that same event, that same eight hour event.
8: And, he tells, the same go. Story.
4: and he tells the same story about how I marched up to him. And everything so full circle
2: moment. Hey, there's a like fate rewards the bold though. That was a bold ass move right there. You know, you just pull up on them, and but that's sometimes what it takes. And I, I, hey that shit dope. I just think of it
4: for real. It is sometimes people just take no for answer. I'm not that girl, I've never been that. No, um you said what? No, oh, okay, got it.
3: Can't do it. I ain't asked you to write. Me. <laughs> Somebody say, no, they already know you're going to be waiting at the door.
4: For real, I just can't take no, I just feel like people will go through hell and high water for their kids to make sure their kids are going to be, I'm always going to rep for my my both, but your life should be like that. You know what I'm saying? People think it's just because when you get your first born, your second born, no, your future is the same way. You can't take no for an answer. Your future is starving. Your future is hungry. Your future is crying. The same way your baby is, change it, feed it, nurture it. It's the same thing, but people only go hard, you know what I'm saying, for a kid or a relationship, that man, like no, your future is the same exact way. You know what I'm saying, so.
7: Ooh, she preaching. Hey, she told y'all she was coming with that fire. Once you were starting to do that, did you like set up a system? Cause it sounded like you had a lot of shit going on. Like how did you manage all of that, man? So
13: man, what it was, was just me, you know, It was a lot of six-hour nights of sleeping and, you know what I'm saying, 18 hours of being up. At the time, man, I was still working full-time. So not only, you know, I'm going in 6 a.m. to 3 o'clock, I'm getting off at 3 o'clock and I'm shooting over to my storage unit to organize stuff. And so what I ended up doing, man, was I learned about Amazon and FBA, where you can actually have the stuff shipped to Amazon and they sell it. And at the time, I had started getting into the water bottles, like the fruit-infused water bottles and different things like that, and researching that kind of stuff. And so I started having stuff shipped to Amazon. And so instead of having all this stuff in a storage unit, I would still sell stuff on eBay, but not at the volume I was before because I was shipping it to Amazon. So basically, the system that I had, man, was I started working on drop shipping because I'm like, yo... I You know, like I, the volume and the customer base is at eBay, but I can't keep up with this demand by myself. And I didn't really trust a lot of people. So I'm like, I can't really hire somebody because what well, if they start taking stuff. So then, man, I learned about drop shipping, where I could order the stuff and just set my delivery date for 15 days, 20 days. And I could just order it and just have it shipped directly from these places that I was getting it in bulk to the customers and then just cut out the whole inventory thing altogether. That took me about two months to finally get it tuned in and locked in. And after that two months, I sold everything that was in my storage unit. And when I was getting ready to close the storage unit, that's when I found out about how you could buy storage units that people, you know, stop messing up on. Then I started buying storage units and selling that stuff on eBay and Craigslist. And man, me, my wife, my mom, and somebody else, we just started, you know what I'm saying? We were just meeting people there, selling stuff on Craigslist, selling stuff on eBay. And we built, like, this big six-figure empire doing that. And then, you know, then I got into teaching people and then started, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, I'm making all this money. I'm making all this money from my job. I'm making all this money from here. I got to start figuring out where I can put this money. And that's when I got into investing. And then I got into rental properties. And then it just grew from there.
8: Man, see, I ain't even like, really want to
7: go into go
8: to this. storage and shit either, man. What you got? I really want to go into the storage units, like, like buying uh the storage units that people haven't paid on like i'm a big um storage wars fan like i I watch wars in my free time like that that's pretty cool to like go in and tell you but you don't know what you're getting it's kind of like a mystery what you're getting and and trying to sell that stuff off for a profit
13: yeah man some people i'll tell you something man some people got these units and they just got nothing but junk in there that ain't worth nothing you like why are you paying all this money to keep this in here and some stuff you get, and you're like, why are you paying so little money to keep all this stuff in here? I had a storage unit one time, man, that we bought that someone had a furniture store. And uh, somebody had this furniture store, and they defaulted on these three storage units. And so we were able to buy two of them. The other one we wasn't able to get. We opened it up, living room sets, bedroom sets, dressers, mirrors. I got pictures of it too, man. And I couldn't believe it. And man, that stuff sold like hotcakes, man. I mean, like they even still had the prices on them where he had them set up in his store where, you know, they got the little display on the tables, and we would just sell them for half the price. I paid fifteen hundred dollars for one unit and twelve for the other one, and we ended up making close to seven thousand dollars off both those units. God damn.
7: How do you find out like this? Do they post this at the storage units if someone It was
13: by accident. It. I was going there cleaning out my unit getting it cleaned out so I could take everything in. And they had all these, like, units up and people, like, it wasn't a lot of people coming, but all these doors were up. So I went in there and I was like, yo, what's going on? Does someone own all these units? They're like, no, today is auction day. I said, what's auction day? They said, well, if people don't pay their storage units after three months or however months and they don't pay it, we break the locks and we open it up and people come auction on them. I said, well, what do you got to do to do it? Do I got to get an auctioneer's license or nothing? She just kind of laughed. She's like, no, so you just go out there and look. And you can bid on it, you just can't walk in, and you can't, you can't look around, you just gotta bid. And so they're like halfway up, you know what I'm saying? They're not even all the way up, they're like halfway up. And you can kinda of look around and see, and so I was like, well, how much is this one? She's like, give us an offer, the bidding starts at this. I was like, what? I said, well, 225, you know what I'm saying? Cause the bidding started at 200. She looked around, she said, going what?" and there was nobody else around, I thought it was a joke. She's like, going on once, going twice, so, to the gentleman right here. And I was like, well, where is it? Really? And she's like, yeah, it's yours. But you got to go pay up at the front. So, I paid up at the front, went into there, and this dude had all these tools. I remember, like, it was yesterday. It was tools. And they had, like, uh, all these, like, little roller things for, like, an auto shop. Mm-hmm. Different, like, stools that you roll around in. like, And they were all Snap-on, which is a really good brand. Yeah,
7: that's a good company.
13: And the tools were, I mean, they weren't new, but they looked brand new. And so, man, I just started posting them on eBay and Craigslist. It took me about a week and a half to sell it. I made a little over $700 off that. And so I started, I was like, well, and I went in there, I was like, when is your next auction thing? She's like, well, we have them every Saturday, but the best time to come is during the wintertime because a lot of people, they just default and a lot of people don't come out. But you can come any weekend. And if we have them, you'll see them up. And then I started flipping storage units after that.
2: that's dope man I'm about to go to the few stores you (laughs) discussed
14: yeah yeah man
2: George bro I do want to ask you cause like you were selling on eBay and uh, Amazon and all that selling online I want to ask you how were you marketing your business like what were some ways that you were getting it out there cause posting on eBay like I know they like people looking on eBay so there's already some organic traffic there but did you do like any other advertising
13: not never That's what trips people out to this day. I never did any advertising. I just, I never really thought to do it because everything I put on there is sold. So I I never really even thought I, I probably could have sold stuff faster, but I never had a problem selling anything because I did enough research on my competition and what other people were selling to where I would price my stuff a certain way. But then I also found out how the algorithm would work so I knew what to put in my titles and I knew what to put in my descriptions to where they would always go to the top. Mm -hmm. It was like a cheat code. But I'm gonna be honest with y'all brothers, I still to this day don't know how did that work, but it just did. You know what I'm saying? Because I would go on like my laptop or somewhere else and I would search for a particular phone and mine would always be in the top three to five. And I never paid for it. And some of the people above me and even below me were like sponsored ads. And here I am, this dude in the middle, organic. Ain't, you know what I'm saying? Ain't paid for nothing. And it just sold. I just learned how, what to put in the title and then what to put in the description so that I just got into the I basically went back to my days of when I was in internet marketing where I learned about search engine optimization. Mm-hmm. And I just basically applied that same concept to eBay. And believe it or not, man, it worked. Hey,
2: that's, and, that's dope, bro. And that's like one of the, that's dope. Cause I like that you use the skill from a job. Cause you know, we talk about that a lot too. Whenever you're doing a job, you should always look at the things that you're doing as something that you can monetize for yourself later. Right. Right. right now, shit.
7: I, yeah. I don't even, I don't care like what type of job it is. Even if you just a cashier, at, like the dollar store, that should be you figuring out how can I be the best customer service rep I can be? Or even if you're a janitor, man, how am I going to be the best janitor? How can I take this? I can probably start a cleaning service off of this. Now I know how to wax. I know how to strip. I know how to do it. Everything that you do, no like such David, thing yeah, as a it, wasted opportunity. Everything you can learn and you can build off of.
13: Man, it's funny you said the janitorial thing, man. I'm gonna share a story with y'all if y'all don't mind. Wow. This guy on Periscope was following me, and he was like, "Man, I'm a janitor. I don't make a lot of money, but I want to learn how to get into eBay." And so I was like, "Okay." So you know, he set up a coaching call with me and was telling me how he wanted to get into eBay to make more money. And I started asking him more about. I was like, "What do you do?" He told me. I said, well, you know, what exactly do you do as far as Jan? Are you just taking out trash? He's like, no, I strip and wax floors. I do this. I do that. I said, okay, man, this course is $300. He said, okay, I saved up the money. I'm going to go buy it now. I said, no, you're not. I said, this is what you're going to do. Where do you live? And he told me, and I found a wholesale cleaning supply store. I said, man, here's what you need to do. You need to go buy all the supplies that you need. And then what you're going to do, I'm giving you all some free game. I said, you're going to go to Craigslist. And you're gonna go into the services section and you're gonna look for places that have a business that are promoting their services. So physicians are on there, dental offices are on there, attorneys are on there, different places like that. And I said, You're gonna send them an email or call their number and offer your services to them. And he said, But well, man, I do this already for a job. I said, How much do you make of your job? And he said, I make 950 an hour. I was like, So you make 950 an hour. I said, Here's what you're gonna do: you're gonna charge people. About $100 to $150, depending on the size of their building. I want you to walk in there. If it takes you two hours or less, it's $100. Anything over two, two to four hours, it's 150 He's like, oh, okay. And he, you could tell he was hesitant. So I walked through it with him, you know, helped him go to Fiverr, get a logo, all this other stuff. And this dude ended up getting two clients that first week. One was 150 the other one was $100. He would knock them out in two and a half hours. So he made what would take him one week of working 40 hours a week in like one night. And he was doing them twice a week. So he was making more money in one week than he was for his two-week check. And in two weeks, for only working two nights a week, he was making more than he made one month. And now this dude has about 15 cleaning clients and he still has his job. And he makes more in his business than he does his job, but he likes what he does in his job. Plus he's got a retirement that he's waiting on and uh this dude is making he went from making a little less than what twenty two, twenty three hundred 2300 a month to he makes about five grand six grand a month now doing exactly what he does in this nine to five
7: mm, i love it so now that we got how you started yeah. let's get into the good stuff with what you're telling us about with building your business credit okay. um and i know you said you know you spoke about it earlier so i'm gonna just let you get into kind of how you break it down and how you tell people you know Hey, Stephanie, I want to start building my business credit. Uh, let me see what should I do
8: now? Or what Can we go into? Actually, can we go into why is business credit necessary?
15: That's exactly where I was going to start. Um, like the benefits of it. So business credit is really building a business credit profile that is separate from your personal. So a lot of people make that mistake and mix the two, even with just a bank account. So a lot of people run their business through their personal bank account and then when tax time comes it's really difficult for them to separate the two so this allows you to have a completely different profile while you're not ruining your personal credit score because a lot of times when you're just getting started you're maxing out your personal credit cards like crazy getting equipment getting supplies you know getting payroll whatever it is for your business right with a maxed out credit card your score is gonna drop tremendously. That's 30% of your score right there, automatically. Mm -hmm. And then you're just getting started so you don't have a whole lot of money to pay that credit card down quick enough to build your score back up, right? So the benefit of building business credit is to completely separate your business from your personal and not hurt your personal score in the interim. You're just straight building business credit to start your business, grow your business, expand your business, right without a personal credit check or a personal guarantee so you're also not legally liable yeah so it prevents you from that liability part
2: so it's almost like setting up an llc for credit
15: yes that's exactly what you're doing so you have to have a corporate entity so if you're set up as an corp or um you know sole proprietor partnership you're not separating your business from you the business is still under you Right. Mm -hmm. So you're mixing the two still. So you have to be set up as an LLC or a corporation to have that entity completely separated. So the benefits are you have larger credit limits. You're not hurting your personal credit score, right? Your borrowing power is tremendous. You get access to credit and funding a lot easier. And I mean, why not? There's companies like Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Walmart. Do those companies really need business credit? No. They absolutely do not, but they know how to leverage other people's money and leverage that credit to grow their business into the billion-dollar businesses that they are. That's so why would uh, yeah? So why wouldn't we, as a small business owner, do the same exact thing? If we can look up their business credit profile and see they have 200 trade lines, why aren't we doing it?
2: it, it I think it all just goes back to that that fear and that lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. Yes, because. Like when it comes to debt, we've been, we as a culture, we've learned that debt program, is a bad yeah. thing. Like debt is a bad thing. But if you look at all these huge fortune 500 companies, like you were mentioned, you look at their credit profiles, their debt loads are huge. They have debt loads in the billions,
11: mm-hmm.
2: but these are still the largest companies in the world. So like whenever you start understanding that debt is kind of how the money game works, then that's whenever you can start making those changes like and see the true benefits of that business credit.
15: Exactly. You know, it takes money to make money, but you also gotta know how to manage it. And I think that's the problem that we have. We were never taught how to manage it. So you get really fearful of it. So a lot of people is like, nope, I just want to pay cash for everything. Right. And then you struggle later Mm -hmm. on because you're gonna eventually run out of money, right? You haven't built any credit. Right. Any credit. I have lots of clients who have tens and thousands and millions of dollars in a bank account, but they can't buy a house or they can't get a car. Or they can't get this because they have no credit history, right? So the money does nothing for you. It's the credit that allows you to, you know, get access to those things.
8: So you're telling me I can have a 500 credit score, personal credit score, and I can still get loans, and business loans and credit cards through my business to, to pay for other things.
15: 100% exactly. So your personal credit score, be challenged or not, you can still build a business credit profile, grow your business and do also your, your personal credit. It's not a factor. Okay. So that's amazing because you know, personal credit, there's five key factors that make up that score. So you got to make sure you're mastering five different areas, right? So you got to make sure you have history. You got to make sure you keep the utilization low, pay all your bills on time. Don't apply for too much credit, right? Um, and not closing old accounts. So, you know, if you mess up in one area, you know your score is going to hurt but you know no worries business credit is here to say <laughs> you can build it in a short amount of time and your personal credit history is not an issue i
7: love it so i feel like i know you go yeah now i want to know like <laughs> what do i have to do to build it like, because i know people are going to ask like where do i start
15: <laughs> yeah that's exactly how they get and that's how excited i was because again i started in the personal credit world Found out about business credit, did the same thing, learned as much as I needed to, used it for my own business, because you can use it for any business. You don't have to have a particular type of business to build business credit. Used it for my business and then started to teach other people. So, yes, I, that's how excited I was. I was like, tell me how. <laughs> like, my personal credit is not a factor. And so, you know, that excitement definitely led me to dive deep and learn the exact steps. So, Um, that's what we're gonna talk about, how to become lendable, how to become credit worthy, and without a personal guarantee.
2: Yeah, I'm interested. Cool. All
15: right. So in the very first step, we want your business to be credible, right? Mm -hmm. And what that means is by the creditor's standpoint or the lender's perspective, they wanna see that you're, you know, you're legit, you're legit. So first you want to be sure that you're incorporated. We talked about that earlier, but that is key, right? You want to have an LLC or some type of corporation. Then you want to be sure that your business name, right? So that's your LLC.
0: Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah. Or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about?
15: It's also consistent with your DBA. So if you have a trade name, like you want to be doing business, as something separate as your LLC, make sure you have those corporation documents all together listed correctly at all times. Very, very important. So a lot of times you fill out an application and you probably just use one of those business names. You want to use both. Right. So your LLC name and your DBA name. And all right.
7: But people Third, who don't know a DBA means doing business as.
15: Business right? So that's your trade name. So let's say you're incorporated as JHW Enterprises LLC, but you want to just be called JW. Right? Mm. That's your trade name. So you would use both names across all corporation documents, your bank account, your, you know, IRS filings, right? Everything should be consistent. 3, you want to file for EIN, right? that's your tax ID number. That's how your business is identified. So it's basically like your social security number for your personal It's for your business. Um, it is free guys. Like your EIN is free. Go to irs.gov and apply for an EIN. A lot of people will Google EIN and start the application process. And at the end it's like, Oh, you owe $99. You probably went to the wrong site. Yeah. A lot of people make that mistake. It is free. Go to irs.gov and apply for your EIN. It takes, what, five minutes?
7: Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> Make <sure> you <laughs> print out your EIN page, though, because you're gonna have to call back.
15: Yeah, the PDF will pop up on the screen. Yeah. I usually just save it, download it. You can print it, too. Um, yeah. But just save it for sure so that you have that record. I mean, you could always call them, but you mean, you'll be on the phone for hours yeah. <laughs> trying to I get know. I had to
7: done. I had to do it before.
15: Oh, really? Yeah, so yeah. good point. Um, definitely save that PDF document when it pops up and print it as well, because you're going to have to reference that number a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, number four is to have a business address. A lot of people are just getting started. You're doing business out of your home. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, right? You're just getting started. You don't have an office space. However, the creditor is looking at you like you working out of your mom basement. Right? You don't look credible. You don't look like a customer can come to your business and do business with you. So, you want to have a business address. So, if you don't have an office address, like you're leasing a building or something like that, you can do a virtual office address. So, what that means is you're basically renting a space to say that your business is there, you receive mail there, and they give you a business address. So, some no-no's, you want to be sure or do not use your home address, do not use a PO box and do not use a USPS address. Your applications will always get flagged. Okay. So that's really
2: important. All right, so as a person looking for a virtual address, what would be the first place to look?
15: The first place to look is Regus, R-E-G-U-S. That's a really popular one. It is pretty much in every state. It's really big. So that one is probably the number one resource. Um, Second, there's Alliance Virtual Office. That's another good resource. Mm -hmm. So you can Google it in your state and your city and state will pop up and the different pricings will show up and whatever fits your budget, you can choose from there. But it's a simple process. You don't have to get the, all the upgraded receptionists and um, conference room and all that stuff. You can do that later. But just to have the address for your business to be registered there is all you need. Really? Okay? Yeah, those are two really good resources for business addresses. So again, remember, don't use a PO Box or USPS.
7: Y'all but get y'all there. get y'all either a location or a virtual address.
15: There you go, those two. Okay, number five is to be registered with 411 National Directory. A lot of people don't know that. Okay, I didn't know that. One. You don't use 411 anymore, <laughs> right? When's the last time anyone went to 411 to get a number or you know look up a business?
13: Yeah, Not even
15: the
8: yeah.
15: Yellow Pages, right? Use this. Hey, right? <laughs> Exactly, it's totally different. However, the creditors use it, right? Mm-hmm. So they want to know that you're registered with the four one one national directory. You can go to listyourself.net and register your business, your phone number, and all that with four one one. I'm dropping jazz. People
6: don't know. Yeah, like, like, <laughs> yeah, y'all better appreciate yeah, yeah,
7: this. Better appreciate this. Yeah. this is something you have to pay for. Yes. I'm, you, like,
15: yes. I'm telling you, even if you Google it, they'll give you like a tiny bit of this stuff, but they're not going to give you the step-by-step yeah. and they're not going to give you
7: everything. No. So, right.
15: So that was the piece that got stuck for me when I was trying to research it. Mm-hmm. Like, they're so tight lip about it. Like they'll tell you, oh, business credit is available, but okay. How do I get it? Like, how do I build it? So I had to get trained, you know, Get the goods get the insight and that's what i'm sharing today um number six is to have a business phone number again we're all using our cell phones for everything however again you're not looking like a corporation right so you want to have a business phone number so like a toll-free number you can also have a local phone number that's registered for your business and you can still forward that number to your cell phone
2: Mm -hmm. so uh would you recommend google voice numbers for
8: something when you started?
15: unfortunately google voice does not count so the creditors will notice that it's a google voice number so um that doesn't count because they know it's a free service <laughs> right so you want to use either ringcentral.com or grasshopper So it's the same thing as the virtual business address, but it's a virtual phone number. So you're not paying for like a whole landline system or anything like that. It's just the number to make your business look more credible and you can forward it straight to your cell phone. So, you know, it's a business call, just change the ringtone. So, you know, the business call is coming to your cell phone. But those are two really good resources and it's very affordable, 20 to $30 a month.
7: That's not bad at all.
15: Yeah. You get a local number, a toll free number and a fax number.
7: Oh yeah, yeah. That's, that's, and, that's definitely good.
15: And as a plus, they will also register your business with the 411 directory for you. So a lot of people get stuck on that step. Ring Central will do that for you.
7: Hey, I'm telling you, this is some gems for real. Like, if y'all <laughs> not writing this notes. down, yes, I need you go know. to like rewind that and go listen again.
15: Yes, make sure you take notes because you're not gonna find this information anywhere and otherwise you'll have to pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> Was um, seven is the fax number like I mm-hmm. talked about earlier so there's gonna be a lot of documents you have to fax in when you're filling out credit applications and just having a fax number again makes you look more credible according to the creditors uh, so you want to be sure that you have a fax number you can set that up with the virtual phone system or you could just get an e-fax that goes to your email all right there's a lot of free services for that also So that's simple. Again, these are simple things, guys, so.
7: It's like stuff that'll be overlooked. That a lot of people wouldn't
8: I know, I think a lot of people would think you would need all these things to just get business credit, but this is something Mm -hmm. that the creditors will look at. So, exactly.
15: It's that foundation piece.
8: Yeah.
15: Right, so before you even apply for a credit account, you gotta have this piece done. That's why I call this the become, I mean, lendable framework. Because if you don't have that foundation, You're, you're going to be, they're going to be denying you left and right. You're going to give up or you're going to think it doesn't work. Right. All because you don't have these pieces set. So this is why I go over this first. So you know what your business needs to look like first, right? Not using your cell phone, not using your home address. All those things are important. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Legitimize. Yeah. So, you know, also becoming lendable, you got to have a website. And it doesn't have to be a four or five page website with a whole bunch of pages and a whole lot of information, just a one pager with the services you provide and your contact information. As long as a client can find you, find the services you provide and how to reach you like your phone number and email address and your business address. That's all you need.
2: So really you could almost basically set up like a landing page. There you go. And you can set those up on MailChimp for the free 99. Ah. So look, a lot of these services are free.
15: A lot of them are free. Some a of them, them
7: can't of them. get by, like, like she said, with the virtual address and the uh, phone. But, you know, a lot of it is free. It,
15: yes, then a um, lot of it is
7: free.
15: It, it, um, you do not have to go out and get a graphic designer or anything like that. Like, no, nothing fancy, because when they Google you, they're not going to tell you this. The creditors will google you they want to know what you do so why not the information come directly from your website right Letting them know what you do so have a little one-page website what you do and how to find you okay this gives an overview of your business let them know you're serious because what business doesn't have a website unless you're you know serious about your business
7: yeah not not too many in this day and age
15: yeah. <laughs> right or social media right You. Yeah,
7: you yeah, wanna yeah. Have
15: a presence
7: so they if, if a they do have a social media setup it still works yes okay
15: mm-hmm. they, they just want to know how they can find out about what you do right how people can find out what you do and how they can contact you so that's why that internet web presence is very important okay um, and number nine is a business email address guys quick The free email services, I know it's convenient, I understand, but the Yahoo, the Hotmail, MSN, AOL, all those, they have to go, right? They do not wanna see I like to party 2008 at (laughs) yahoo.com on your credit application, right? (laughs) Because that's what we used back in college, right? We had all those silly names and using Yahoo, using AOL but that doesn't make you look like a business owner so you want to have a business email address at your company name info at your company name stephanie at your company name right whatever it is but it must be at your company name that makes okay. you look credible
2: and you can get that through a g-suite yes
15: yeah, I I
7: just
2: want you to know, a lot of those things
7: that you mentioned, we got on the checklist. That's
15: good. Yes. G Suite. So if they do not, well, most hosting services offer probably like two email addresses, Mm -hmm. um, but G Suite is another option and you can get five to like 10 um, email addresses. So if you have like partners and assistants and things like that, they can get their own email addresses and it's so affordable. It's like $4.99 a month. So no excuses i'm not trying to hear it like you can't afford a business email address you don't need to be running a business all right so definitely definitely invest in getting a business email address don't wait until you're applying for credit don't wait until you're trying to get a loan do it now do it today or else you're going to forget about it so it's not only professional but that's what's going to get you that thumbs up from the creditors
7: so y'all take action after y'all listen to this
15: Yeah. and that's the most important part right so a lot of us listen to these podcasts they listen to all type of information they go read a book all this stuff or even spend money going to workshops seminars and then guess what you sit on it yeah. no you got to take action because knowledge without action is just moot. Yeah. yeah right so you got to if it's what you want and it's going to help you and it's beneficial take action yeah right, so exactly what Jalen said. Um, And then lastly is your bank account. you got to have a business bank account. I can't stress this enough, right? You want to have a separate business account for your business. Now, if you incorporated 10 years ago, let's say you got your LLC 10 years ago, and you've been rocking your business, thinking you're doing a thing, right? But you never opened up a business account, the creditors are going to say you don't have a business. The day you open your business bank account is the day your business started, according to them. That's how they look at it. Write that down. I'm gonna say it again. <laughs> the day you open your business bank account is the day your business started.
8: So I, I wanna go back to something you said earlier. Yeah, you're okay. really transparent and I follow you on Twitter, you believe you have like really good threads about credit. And you released something earlier talking about like FICO is releasing another credit score for um, mm-hmm. in December. Can you talk about F-I-S-S. that?
16: F-I-S-S. Yes. So Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax, like they've all been doing these alternative FICOs. And what I mean by alternative FICOs, like their credit scores that deviate from what has traditionally been scored with the FICO system. So they're coming out with FICO, um, FIF, FICO FIST is what they called it. And it's basically going to score in your rent. If you have any licenses, like say you're a hairdresser, you got to have a cosmetology license that's going to be factored into your FICO score. So um, let's see, Experian Boost release or Experian had the Experian Boost. So those scores are actually like optional. So if you signed up for Boost and you connected your bank account to it and you went to a car lender and you're like, hey, my Experian Boost score is 60 points higher than my FICO score, they don't have to use your Experian Boost score. Like they can tell you like, nah, like we're not using that. So FICO is actually developing a new credit scoring model that lenders will probably end up buying in a couple of years, where you don't have to do the whole middleman with the credit bureaus. Like that's where we come directly from FICO. Yeah, that's
8: pretty
7: cool. So they're going to be getting rid of the credit bureaus, which is what you're saying.
16: No, because this is what the credit bureaus do. Um, I tell people all the time, like, as regular consumers, we are not the customers of Experian transient and equifax unless you are buying something directly from them like maybe they're credit monitoring or i think you can buy credit reports from them but they make their money from bank of america capital one um, all of these places that they want data basically like that's how they make their money and all of it the, all they do is house records that's it they don't tell you like hey you have to pay this account or you don't have to pay this account all they do is house records like what they have on file for you is what they have on file for you and that's it but it's so many people like we live in a world where data is probably the most like
7: value valuable, value. yeah the most
16: valuable thing so yeah they're not going nowhere no time soon and aside from like just stuff in our credit profiles those big three how so much data on so much stuff is ridiculous
2: yeah. So I'm thinking like, like it still would be kind of hard to just cut them out with that too, because I mean like the FI SS, that's what you said it is. Mm-hmm. Like it's gonna take a while for people to start adopting that, I'm pretty sure too. It's not like they just gonna drop this and everybody like, oh, they dropped the new and that's it.
16: Yeah, no, uh, because um and then FICO, like their biggest customers are the credit bureaus because the credit bureaus buy credit scoring models from FICO. Um Let's talk about Vantage. so you guys know Credit Karma uses a completely different scoring system from FICO. Mm-hmm. That vantage scoring system is actually a joint partnership between Experian, Equifax and TransUnion.
17: Mm-hmm.
16: So they've been trying to like
2: wiggle their way up really, under FICO?:
16: Yeah, like wiggle their way out of FICO, but FICO has been around for so long. it's, it's really like a monopoly. And that's why there's so many different credit monitors to like use Vantage now because Vantage done cut like crazy deals with them. But until somebody says like, oh, you guys have to use these other scores, like FICO is still gonna be the leader in scoring period. Earlier last year, there was a law passed that said the mortgage um, lending industry has to be more open to using other scores. But them doing that, I don't see us, using like Vantage scoring or even more updated FICO scoring models in the mortgage industry, which is federally regulated. So the mortgage, the scores used in mortgage lending are the exact same scores, no matter where you go, no matter what type of mortgage you get, whether it's FHA, conventional, uh, USDA, it's always the same exact three scores that they have to use. I don't see that changing for at least five years because you'd have to completely overhaul so much stuff that, we've been used to doing.
7: Okay. So can we kind of go into those three score models that they use for mortgage? Because whenever yeah. you kind of touched on it earlier, I was kind of drawn to it.
16: Um, so fight and they're really, really early models of the FICO score. So I think right now we're up to like FICO nine. Yeah. Yeah. So FICO's two, four and five are the ones used for mortgage lending. And the only place you can get those as a consumer is from my I think it's like $40. But it'll show you, yeah, it'll show you all of your FICO scores for all three credit bureaus. So if you are serious about buying a house, getting a mortgage, refinancing, you definitely owe it to yourself to go see where you stand before you go shopping yourself around sending lenders.
8: So wait, you're telling me I can't go look at Credit Karma and that's not
16: my score? <laughs> No, <laughs> no, because that's Vantage. That's going to be a Vantage score on top.
8: Can you go into that, how uh, credit karma versus the actually looking at your mortgage scores and why they're different?
16: Um, so the biggest difference between, so with each individual FICO model, like, and even with the advantage scoring, it's the same breakdown, 35% payment history, 30% credit utilization, um, 15% credit age, 10% new credit, credit increase, and then 10%, um, what's the last one? I feel like I can do this in my sleep. you said oh average age of credit yeah so it's basically the same breakdown the only thing that varies like model to model is how different events happen or how different events are scored in each thing so like in the earlier fico models your student loan late payments might not be scored as heavily as like a mortgage late payment right but in the later models like if you ever defaulted on your student loans That's going to kill you way more than you being late on a credit card payment. So it's still the same Mm -hmm. breakdown as far as like how it's calculated. One of the different, the biggest difference between the FICO score model and the Vantage score model is that Vantage only scores open accounts, the open accounts on your profile. So I got like three paid off cars in my credit report with flawless payment history. That does nothing for my Vantage score. But that payment history is still calculated into my FICO score because FICO is going to score your entire credit profile. So if you ever like logged in a credit karma and you was like, "Well, why is my credit karma score so off from my actual FICO score?" That's why.
7: Well, that's that's really interesting, and I kind of want to go back whenever you said before you go to shopping yourself around because a lot of people don't understand what shopping around does to your credit score. Even like whenever you going to different car dealerships. And trying to purchase cars they don't understand like the effects that it could have An increase yeah
16: yeah so here's the thing about increase and then i tell this to a lot of my clients when they sign up i'll have people sign up for credit or for credit repair and they're like oh and i need all these inquiries gone no you just need to stop applying for credit <laughs> so you can you can have like 100 inquiries on there or you can have 10 inquiries on there they're still only going to be less than 10 percent of your credit score Do they look bad, like, to us? Because it's just, like, why is all this stuff in my credit reports? Yeah, it does. But is it going to stop you from getting a house in a year because you tried to buy a car right now? No. Only thing that stops you from, like, really doing what you want to do, as far as inquiries, is, like, say you go get a mortgage, and the month before you went to get a mortgage, you acquired, like, 60 new inquiries. And the only reason that that looks bad is because, The whole credit scoring system is set up to gauge how you manage debt. Like how responsible are you with managing debt? And when they see that you have a lot of recent inquiries, they feel like that you're in a financial hardship. So you're shopping around to try to get, to basically overextend yourself
7: financially.
2: So I want to know what was the first time you actually went out and traded for yourself?
7: Yeah. And what that looked like, like, how'd you go find your brokerage account, everything.
17: Sure. So it was 2010 and I had been going around looking for houses because it was right after the housing crash and the houses had come down. And that's the only type of investment that I knew about was investing in houses. So I went out with my realtor and we're looking at houses. And This is in Chicago at the time. So we're looking at houses and he keeps talking about how much he made in the stock market. He's like, yeah, I have this stock and it's been doing so good. And he just kept talking it up. So I went home and I tried to open an E-Trade account and actually y'all I had put the wrong address on the E-Trade account. So like it didn't open up right away. It took me probably two months for the, the brokerage account to actually let me start trading, oh. which is crazy. Yes. And I, oh, I remember too at that time they were talking about how like Apple had just hit $100. Can you imagine? Now it's it went up to 700 split into 7 and then has gone up some more. Yeah. So like this was way back in the day. Apple was at 700, Amazon had just hit like 199 and they were all saying that it would never be a good company. Yes.
2: <laughs>
8: <What>? <laughs>
17: <laughs> yes. Oh, and, and now Amazon has gone up to $2,000 so if y'all just can think like back then I was, I was like, I don't know about this Amazon. They, they won't ever take out retail stores. Nobody's going to order online. Right.
7: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
17: But anyway, my first trade was finally, when I got the account open, my first trade was Cisco because I thought that Cisco systems had, had been out and everybody was talking about how internet would take over. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to get into Cisco. That was not a good trade um and then later down the road I always tell my students my worst trade ever was Pandora I thought that they would take over for for you know listening to music but no now you got Spotify YouTube so those were two of my first trades and it didn't go so well but I learned a lot I learned all the mistakes so that I can teach other people how to not make mistakes
7: so, was it like a major hit, or was it just like enough to say, okay, I bumped my head on the wall? Let me really sit down and figure out how to analyze and really trade this thing.
17: Right after I had gone full time, I made a trade in Pandora and lost $26,000. Oh my gosh. Yes, yes and i remember calling my mom crying and i was just like mommy i'm quitting i can't do this i don't know what i was thinking i'm gonna just have to come and at this time i was traveling abroad so i was in thailand and we had like this beautiful day we had lit all these lanterns then i go home because the market time is different the u.s market is at night in thailand mm-hmm. so we had this beautiful day i went home opened up my phone looked at my portfolio and was like <gasps>
6: oh my god
17: (laughs) so yes call my mom she 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 was she stopped me though from quitting because she said well baby how are you gonna get your money back if you quit now and i was like i don't know I was mad enough for being smart at that moment because I was like what are you talking about I'm trying to quit and you over here trying to be, be smart um but I went back I'd stopped the bleeding because right then the portfolio was just falling and I was I was so in, I was so stunned and shocked mm. that I was just gonna let it keep falling but I started going back in stopped that trade and said okay how do I get the money back And then I had to go little by little. And I think that's why I teach people now that it's important to have small goals. When you're trying to just break the bank, that's when you start losing money. But when you have little consistent goals, like, okay, I'm gonna make $200 a day, which equals actually $1,000 a week, $4,000 a month, $48,000 a year, just by $200 a day. But when you can do small goals like that, you can make it work. When you're trying to, I'm repeating myself, but when you're trying to break the bank, that's when you start losing money.
3: Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
17: Don't cash yeah, out I'm, big I'm style. glad you said that. Don't cash
2: like, out big winning style. <laughs> now, because we're getting to talk about investing, I want to get not only into the investor mindset, but really, what was your your strategy with trading? Because to me, are you swing trading? Or are you trading? Day trading. Day trading. Are you like scalping? What, 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 what's, where are you going yeah. about this?
17: Great question. Okay, good, good question. So there's two pieces to that. Like One is the time frame and then one is the strategy. So in terms of my, let's start with strategy first. So my strategy is that I'm reading charts and I'm looking for where are the banks, like big banks, like Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, where are they buying millions of shares? Like what price is that? And then I look on the chart and I can figure out where is the bank selling? So the bank is selling at Let's just say this is a stock, the bank is buying at $100 and they're selling at $200. I can look at a chart and find out those numbers. And my strategy is wherever the bank is buying, that's where I put in my orders to buy. And then I'll hold, hold the trade until right before where the banks are selling. And where the banks are selling, that's when I get out of the trade. So that makes sense? So that's the yeah. strategy. It's, it's, it's actually pretty simple, but you had to learn what to look for, right? Like you had to learn how to read the chart. <laughs> um, and then in terms of time frame, I'll hold it however long it takes to get between that buyer, buyer zone and seller zone. So if it takes um, a day to get there, then I'm out of the trade in a day. If it takes a couple days to a week, then I'll, I'll keep it for a week. But that determines the time frame. Instead of just saying, "Oh, I'm a day trader and I get out of every trade each day," no, I wait until my my uh, trade reaches its target and then I get out of the trade. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot
2: of sense. Okay. I'm really glad that uh that you touched on the 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 thing with the banks. That's really smart. Like, I'm just thinking about it because I didn't. I've never really took the deepest dive into taking stocks, like trading technicals, but I did do forex for a while.
12: Mm-hmm.
2: The banks, those are the people they call the market makers. So they're the ones really making the movements in the market when you really think about it. You and I pulling out a 1000 or $2,000 here, yeah, that's a drop in the that. bucket compared to what they're doing. Whenever they're exactly. making 2 and $3 billion moves, that's whenever you need to be moving if you're trying to really make some money in these markets.
17: Yep, exactly. Like when you're looking at a candlestick chart, the only thing that can move a candlestick is a big bank. That's not me and you that candle is showing you where is that bank moving? So yes, you are completely right. The market makers are the ones who move the stocks.
7: Um, so how did you even figure out, like I need to look at the banks and did you have a mentor that kind of, you know, led you there or did you read a specific book or something like that?
17: Great question. So, I've been trading for nine years. The first six years, I was doing it all by myself. And then after that, like I had a situation with one of my friends passing away, and I got really serious. So, I went and took some classes. My investing class is over $20,000 per class, but I was that serious about it. Like, I'm going to pay the money because I really want to learn how to do this right. So, I went to a, a couple different schools, took some trading classes, and then it matched up with what I was already doing and came up with my own strategy.
7: Oh, Mm -hmm. that's really amazing. I like how you, you know, like you, you took what they were teaching you and you took your own style and, you know, you mixed it up and now you got what you got today.
17: Yes, exactly. And now I do like, I have a seven step trading plan. So every time I take a trade, I go through seven steps and it includes everything from, picking the right companies to risk management, because remember, I told you all I took that one trade and lost all that money. That's because I didn't have any risk management steps in place. Like, how do you make sure you're protecting yourself? So now that's included in my seven steps. I won't make that mistake again. (laughs) And then we go into like the charts and how do I time the trades. But yep, I have a seven step strategy now.
7: And that's what I wanted to ask you about. Also, whenever you know you're saying you're waiting until it hit a certain point, are you setting? i I forget what's the technical term, but uh, a stop loss? orders. Stop, yeah, orders. Are you doing like orders where you're stop lossing and things like that?
17: Yes. So the stop loss protects you on the downside. So when you enter your trade, you can put in a stop loss to protect your risk. And that's where you can say, okay, I only want to lose $100 on this trade. If it goes down more than 100, I'm out of the trade. That's a stop loss. And then at my target, you're putting limit orders. A limit order is one that can just sit in the computer until the stock price gets to that level. And that's actually what big banks have in there too. They have million shares that they're wanting to sell at a certain dollar amount. And that and that's why you can get in and out um, knowing or wanting to see where those bank orders are. Because it's just sitting there in the computer. It's not like they're watching it. They just said, okay, at this price, $200, we're selling two million shares.
7: And I'm also glad that we're able to talk to you right now in this current time because of i want to pivot now people are talking you know about the forthcoming recession and everything like that you know not our economy is not really slowing down but on a global scale you know people are talking about germany might be going in a recession i know japan just did something with uh their tax rates or whatever and every time they've done it before it pushed them into a recession so how can people who are trading or State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. But kind of, you know, get yourself prepared for a recession.
17: Wonderful. So there's a couple different things. One, as a trader, I can make really good money when the stock market comes down. So that's called shorting. And that means that you're selling first and then you're waiting for the price to fall and buying it lower and you can still make the difference. So one thing that they can do to prepare is learn how to short stocks. And, and like my class teaches it, they can do other courses. I personally would recommend mine, but <laughs> um, take a course where you learn how to short and how to make money as the stock market goes down. That's one. Having that skill set ahead of time will help you when it actually does happen. Another thing I think they can do is start building up cash. So during a recession, a lot of things are going to go down in price, whether that's homes are going to go down in price the interest rate already is starting to come down um just many things will go down in price so if they start saving up cash and building up their their cash allocations then when they get when the market comes down they'll be able to actually purchase some things at a discount even stocks they can purchase at a discount because when those good companies come down like when amazon comes down in price for sure, you know I'm getting some. But you just got to, right? <laughs> exactly. So start building up your cash and building up your mindset and your knowledge now before the recession. And then when it comes, you'll be ready to actually uh do something.
2: Yeah, most definitely. Don't be out there like the people back in 08 making bad decisions, being the yeah. being like I always tell this one story when I think about that, because I knew a lady. She worked at McDonald's and she showed me that she was approved for like a $200,000 loan for a house. She was like a manager at McDonald's. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not shitting on nobody's job, but you can't afford that. Like that's, that's the, that was the issue with the stated income and all that. So like, don't be one of those people out here. Like we always talk about the recession and ways to avoid hurting yourself. Don't be one of those people out here making those decisions, getting caught on the wrong side of deals because you you don't realize the times. Yeah. Like, you gotta recognize that shit is overpriced. There's a lot of things that are overpriced right now. A lot of places. For a sure. lot of things in the stock market are overpriced if you ask me.
5: Mm-hmm.
17: But
2: like people not looking at that. Uh, I, I ain't got no question, I just.
5: I hey, but I hand.
7: definitely got you on that one too because I want to make a comment. Like even New York's real estate market, like their market is slowly declining right now. It's definitely on the decline. Like buying an apartment is still high But it's going down at a pace that they've seen right before that last uh, market crash. So Mm
17: -hmm. that's
7: like some things to kind of think about.
17: Exactly. And then even like when I think about the difference between a real estate investment and a stock market investment, one of the things that people need to know and understand is when you're investing in real estate, the bank gets all of your capital up front. So you have to pay, like, say, for example, I wanted to buy a house that's $100,000, and I had to put 20% down. Let's, let's assume that it's an investment property. So I had to put down $20,000 to buy that house and give that money to the bank. And then I probably had to fix it up a little bit. Now I've given them $30,000 to own this house. And yes, I can rent it out, get a little bit of rental income, but I'm probably after the mortgage and you know you get your rent payment but then you have to pay the mortgage Then you have to pay the homeowners association you're probably only bringing in like three hundred dollars a month but you have to pay thirty thousand to bring in three hundred dollars a month that takes you eight years to pay off versus on the stock side you um have thirty thousand dollars you get to keep that money in your account and as you're investing in stocks it's growing but you still have access to the money Mm -hmm. that's to me a better investment because down the road, when some of those houses do fall in price, you still have access to the capital to get it at a better price. Does that make sense? No, it makes Uh, a lot of sense. I'm
2: glad you brought up that side of the the argument because a lot of times when people do the stocks versus real estate thing, you just get a lot of bashing. You get a lot of Mm -hmm. people like, oh man, real estate, you can't never make no money in real estate, but they never give you reasons. They never give you actual legitimate reasons. And I, I like that, that you brought that up because
5: I didn't think of it like
7: that, actually. Where'd you find your love for like oh, economics sorry. and everything?
5: Sorry, I got oh. a crazy dog. Um, yeah, so that's actually the joys of working from home. Normally I do these podcasts in my office, but obviously different times call for different measures. But to answer your question, my love for investing I mean, I've always, I was, I was that kid. You know, for me, if I didn't have the mom that I have, I would have been a drug dealer without a doubt. I mean, I had already like, I had the plan laid, like I had the money stacked, like I had the, I knew it was going to be my runner. I worked at McDonald's when I was in high school and I like, I mean, I'm from the hood, you know, like that's, that's what you do. Those are the examples that you have. All the money people sold drugs in my community. So I remember my mom coming to my room one day and saying, whatever you're thinking about doing, don't do it. And that was like, I had like all the stuff laid out. I was like, all right, going to sell it. You like, I, I you know, we're going to flip it. So for me, having my money make money always made sense to me. That wasn't like an eye-opening thing. What I had to learn was, one, how to do it legally, and two, how to do it as a disciplined investor. Because I feel like most people, when it comes down to investing, most people respond to their money and their investments just like they do when they're in Vegas. They respond based on fear and greed. You know, you're sitting at that blackjack table, your heart's racing, and you start making all the wrong moves because you're emotionally invested and your money's on the table. That's how people respond in the stock market or in the real estate market. Like if I were to ask a question, like, how do you make money in the stock market? Most people would tell me, well, you buy low and you sell high. Sure. That's exactly how you make money in the stock market. You buy something when it's low, you sell something when it's high. But when it comes down to our money being on the line, just like in Vegas, when a stock drops, Most people are like, oh shit, I need to sell this. I need to get out of this thing. Or when something has gone up that we don't own, has run up 20, 30, 40%, they're like, oh, I want some of that. So it's like, if you think about the psychology behind that, we call it behavioral finance. If you think about the psychology behind that, that makes no sense. You just told me you make money by buying low and selling high, but when our money's on the line, we want to do the exact opposite, which is why the average investor way underperforms the S&P 500 because we make all the wrong decisions. So, you know, for me, becoming a disciplined investor was getting to that point where I could look around and say, like, arguably the best investor alive, Warren Buffett, back in the 90s, he was highly criticized, because there was this dot com like explosion, right? You know, so everybody was making money on it, like all these dot com companies were killing it. And he was like, this is a farce. He was like, it's a bubble, it's not going to continue indefinitely. And he was criticized as being out of touch. You know, you know what you're talking about. You're an old geezer, all this crap. And he was hundred percent right. And a lot of people, me included, that was my very first investment was a technology mutual fund in 1999. And I lost 70% of my investment. And that was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because it taught me chasing returns uh, for all the wrong reasons never work. So it took me going from a tech bubble burst to You know, then I was betting big on satellite radio. They had like none of the fundamentals made sense, but I was chasing returns just like everyone else. So it took a lot of those little lessons for me to learn like, don't chase returns, have a discipline. You know, I wanted to get them on Bitcoin like everybody else because everybody else was making a ton of money, but I had to go back to my disciplines and make astute and disciplined decisions.
7: That's some powerful words right there. Um, And you kind of answered my other question. I was going to ask, what was your first investment? But I do want to ask you. So once your mom told you, no, don't do that, what did you turn to and say, you know what, now this is what I'm going to do to go flip my money?
5: So, you know, I, of course, pretended I had no idea what she was talking about, which was- Of course. Yeah. I was like, what? What happened, mom? When? Who who about to do something? So, you know, from there, so at 16, when she, actually I was probably around 17, we had that conversation. I just focused on saving. And I know a lot of folks talk about that. Like, I was just stacking my bank account because I didn't know what to do. Like the drug money made sense because I was like, all right, I can take money for my savings. That's not earning a whole heck of a lot of interest. And I can give it to my homie. She can go ahead and sell it We'll double our money. And then, you know, we re up. So when my mom kind of like shot down my Griselda Blanco aspirations, I then like just started stacking my cash, just waiting for like the opportunity to learn how to legitimately invest my money. So I was, you know, I had a lot of cash. I mean, at 16, 17 years old, I had more probably saved in my bank account than my mother did. And so that's, that is innate in me. I'm a natural born saver. But like I tell people all the time, getting wealthy is not about being a good saver. Being wealthy is obviously first and foremost, knowing how to save, but then more importantly, knowing how to make your money work while you're sleeping.
8: I kind of want to go back and say you talking about the discipline investing. What was the process of that, like to become a disciplined investor? Was it books that you read? I know you talked about the dot-com bubble and the mutual fund, but I know, was there any type of learnings that you had to become that disciplined investor?
5: You know, that's a great question. And we all learn differently, right? So for me, I don't learn through like classes, podcasts. There are books that I've read have mostly taught me more about personal development, self-awareness, that kind of stuff. For me, trial by fire is the best way to learn. So to a certain extent, I had a second upbringing, I had a second raising, and that was basically what I call the white-collar boot camp of being a brand new financial advisor. So my firm at the time, so when I started out of uh, college, I actually worked for American Express, which most people don't know this, but many, many moons ago, American Express had a financial advisors division. So they had the card and travel business, they had the insurance division, and they had a financial advisor's division. So when I came out of college, I joined the company because I'm like, oh, who the hell want to work for American Express? So that training that I got, because they basically took a bunch of us 22, 23-year-olds right out of the college, they cleaned us up and put us in a room. There was probably about 100 of us, and they like drilled into us scripts and discipline and models and leadership development courses and personal development trainings. So that's where I got a lot of my just disciplined investing strategies just sitting in those classes studying for my Series 7. So that's where I got a bunch of the stuff, but really trial by fire is how I learned. So me just making a bunch of mistakes, figuring out, okay, that doesn't work. Oops, that doesn't work. Getting burned again, that doesn't work. That's really how I learned. So I encourage people, depending and again, this is depending on how you learn. Some people get burned and they'll never touch an investment again. So some people need Books, podcasts, classes, seminars, trainings. I think some of that can be a little bit of overkill because then suddenly people aren't taking action at all. But I often encourage people, open up like a, a Schwab app account or open up your cash app and like start buying some stocks. See what works, see what doesn't work. But that's just how I learn. So, you know, obviously people need to figure out how they learn and, and go from there.
18: Wealth can't wait, man. You got to attack it, you
2: know? <laughs> Wealth can't wait. I like Blood that. Yeah. So, really I do kind of want to go back into your story. Because you touched on it earlier again in 06, whenever you went and bought your first property right before that economic downturn, could you tell us like I know you said you walked away
18: from the condo. What was that first deal that you ended up getting into? Two family, two family FHA. You know that FHA is a powerful tool, man. You know, like I said, if you can get into something with three and a half percent down, um, you're taking control of an asset. I tell you, like I said, just to give you some hard numbers from you know here in Boston. I'm right outside Boston. I'm you know maybe 15 minutes outside the city. And in 2006, I bought that multifamily for 400. So what was I putting down? Like 12,000, 13,000, whatever like that. You know, I'm the type of person, I knew how important it was that most people, oh, I I don't know if I could save up 13 Gs. Dude, I had an extra, I was working two jobs and going to school and I borrowed like five Gs from my mother and, you know what I'm saying? So I did what I had to do to scrape that money together because I knew that once I got that asset, you know, my tenant was paying right from the jump. 1700. My mortgage was damn. 25.
1: Damn.
2: So,
18: you know, like I said, so it was right off the jump, I was paying $800 for an apartment that I should have been paying 1700 for. You know what I'm saying? So, and I'll tell y'all some others, the rents here in Boston are crazy right now. If y'all, if y'all blown away with that, that was 2006, bro. I tell you, some, man, I'm renting out some stuff right now that I couldn't even afford myself, bro. <laughs> it's crazy. But that's the thing, though, is, right, is, and I, the thing, the reason why everybody else was getting foreclosed on and losing, I wouldn't say everybody else, but while you saw foreclosures start to tick up and people losing their homes because they went out and bought single families, right? And if you lost your job, then you don't have any other income coming in. Whereas a multifamily, and I'm not even buying twos anymore, we're buying, I don't know if you guys know anything, Boston, everything's a three family here. We got the triple deckers you know, stacked mm-hmm. up. So we're buying three families and if you, two rents are pretty much paying off your, all your expenses and you're pretty much living in that last one for free. So, you know, I kind of learned from that. Went out and bought another three-family. I flipped the FHA into a conventional, and then, if y'all know, y'all can use the FHA again. Um, Went out and bought the second one with FHA. Me and my wife—we weren't married at the time. You know, she was my girlfriend. We had been together for four or five years. I felt like there was a, you know, proposal. Like I felt like we was gonna stay together. So I was like, shit. Well, she got an FHA too. So I told her to go out. We saved up some dough together. She pulled some money out of her 401k. I gave her some cash. She went out and bought another three. So now we got two, three, three, and then she's got an FHA, right? So, and this is the thing I preach because people are like, I don't really want to live in a multifamily. I don't want tenants. I want to live in a single family. Buy that multifamily first. You don't have to be there forever, right? So she's got a three. I got a three. I got another two. We went out and bought another single family, what we actually wanted to live in with 5% down. So now we got our single family plus eight units, all with minimal down payments, just from playing the game the way it's supposed to be played. Hey, that's- that. hold
3: on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Because <laughs> I have to act like the people from the Instagram comments for
18: me. Nah, I do. believe me, I read some of y'all stuff and it'd be, it'd be, it'd be like, bro, i would be hearing people say, don't buy a house because I don't want to live there for 30 years. I'm like, you can sell the house where you don't have to live there for 30 years. It's not a 30 year commitment this is like a marriage. When you say I do forever, it's only 50% of the time that that actually is forever, bro. (laughs) You know, so. So, But go ahead and address it. Go ahead and address it. No, no, no. I was even,
3: (laughs) but you kind of spoke to it too, because I feel like a lot of people are going to say, well, how do I go out and, you know, I trust somebody enough to go buy a
18: property with them or do something like that. I had this conversation yesterday with my guy. He's He's a good friend of mine. And, you know, he was like, I can't. Let, no, I'm not gonna call him out because I don't want his girl to get mad at me for. for <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm not gonna say any days. But he was like, "Okay, so how do I know?" Like, I see, he was like, "I see what you're saying, but what if me and my girl don't stay together?" Right? You, you said so. I was like, "Look, bro, if you buy a house right now, y'all buy something together. And let's say it appreciates, and y'all, in, you know, here in the Northeast things are crazy. Let's say ten years from now it's worth two hundred thousand dollars more, right? And y'all don't stay together." Would you rather be in court fighting over that two hundred thousand dollars, or would you rather have never had done anything that way? Y'all can just break it off clean, y'all. That way, y'all don't have anything to fight about, right? That makes no sense to me. I'd rather be in court fighting over something than to say, <laughs> you know, we're well, we gonna split that <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Hey, you
7: know what I'm saying, what you or
18: or you can never invest, and then y'all don't have to. You don't have to worry about it because you don't have nothing to split over. So that's the way I looked at it. I was like, you know, at the time I'd been with my girl for a little while as well, and. I didn't know for certain. You never know. I mean, that's I mean, 50 statistics say is 50% of marriages end in a divorce in the United States anyway, right? So there's a 50-50 chance that we're not gonna make it, right? So, but at the same time, I was looking at it, I was like, dude, if we make it 10 years and I didn't do this, that's just foolish. You know what I'm saying? Like, I could have had an extra asset in my name. Now I tell you, there's too much upside to it, right? Because we did do it. That same 15000 dollars that we scraped together, she took a little bit out of her 401k. Dude has paid off, came back around, the property appreciated, right? We took $50,000 out of the property, paid off her student loans for Northeastern. This is five years ago. Took another, and I'm not trying to talk big money stuff to y'all. I'm just, like I said, I'm just. No, talk
3: your stuff, brother. Talk your
18: stuff. (laughs) You know, took another $200,000 out of the property. So it's been 10 years now or so and built a house for ourselves that we now live in right now, right? It helped fund. We basically bought a house. That single family I was telling y'all but that we bought, we tore that down to the foundation and built another house based on the asset, you know, pulling out the, and still own the actual property itself at the end of the day, if that makes sense to y'all, right? It really. Yeah, it makes sense. But I need you to explain this for the people. Cause like, I think this is a concept people miss
2: all the time with real estate. Like you pulling the equity out, right? right. But you're not putting any money up because your tenant is paying right all this down right so like
18: where is the downside in it there is no downside and this is what blows my mind this is why i'm on here talking to y'all because I, I need people to understand this right because there's enough out there. i'm be in the mindset where i don't have to keep this to myself because there's enough out there for all of us right so i'll give you the a little bit harder numbers right so when we bought the place the rents were about fifteen hundred dollars and this is her place right and our mortgage was roughly three thousand dollars but we, it was a three family sorry so the rents were about fifteen hundred we had three families we pulling out fifteen hundred dollars a month And that's why I had the confidence to go to somebody and say, "Hey, can I borrow this seven grand from you?" Because I know I'm getting fifteen hundred dollars a month, and I could pay you back over the next six months. We did that, right? But rents don't stay the same. Your mortgage payment is likely going to stay pretty much where it is. Your taxes are not going to jump up that much. Your insurance is not going to jump up that much. So Let's say my mortgage payment went up to thirty-two hundred dollars, but over the next five years, rents are now two thousand dollars a unit. So two thousand dollars a unit, I'm getting six thousand dollars. So I can go back to the bank and say. I initially borrowed 300,000 for you, but now I'm getting $6,000 a month from this property. I need another $200,000 to take, uh, it's called a cash out refinance, right? So you still own the property. You're just putting more debt on that property, which is okay because now the rents are still covering that 500 or $600,000 mortgage, right? and this doesn't... It's not a Northeast thing. It's not a Boston thing. If You can take those same exact numbers and apply it to anywhere in the country and the system works exactly the same. So all we did was pull out cash and a cash out refinance and use that cash to go out and build. And what's crazy about it is we didn't go out and take that cash to go on vacation, right? We didn't take that cash and go, and go have a lavish wedding or buy Range Rovers or anything like that. We took that cash and invested right into another asset, this one not income producing, but let's say we bought the house for three hundred. We put two hundred into it. It's probably worth seven now. So we actually created even more equity within that asset that we have there, you know. So and that's wealth building, man. That's wealth building. That's finance. I didn't always notice. I didn't always, you know. Some of it's experimental. You have to kind of just dive in and just kind of, you know, see where things go. But you know, that's it.
7: Hey, that's some boss ass shit right now, man. I love it. Bro. <laughs> so I kind of want to get back, get a little bit deeper into like the real estate though. So now with the way that the current market is changing and how are you kind of like focused, what is your niche now? Are you still focused on the multifamilies? Are you kind of like growing up out of there, trying to go to apartments? How are you navigating that?
18: So my thing is I've always loved the residential multifamily, right? So that means that for those of you that are not familiar, residential multifamily, when people say multifamily, people start thinking I'm talking about 20 units. I'm talking about two to four units, two, three, and fours. And I feel like there's more opportunity there. Once you get up into five, 10, 15 units, you're dealing with a lot of sophisticated investors and stuff like that. So I told you my, you know, I got a three FHA, wife got a three FHA, we go get another conventional. At a certain point, the lenders are going to start looking at you and saying, you're a real estate investor, right? We're not tag, we're not going to give you any more conventional financing. So what you have to do is you have to start looking at commercial financing. You can get, and when I say that, people think I'm talking about supermarkets. Commercial finance, you can use commercial financing to buy residential property, right? As long as it's in a LLC and you're renting it out. So I started looking at commercial financing and I'm looking at the BRR strategy. That's all I do is buy, renovate, rent, and refinance. So my whole portfolio is built right now on buying rundown multifamilies that need extensive amount of work. We just closed on one 48 hours ago, right? Put some money into it, new appliances, new carpet, paint. Fix up the kitchen, fix up the toilet, you know, the bathroom, and then rent it out. You know, and then like I said, in, the, in a perfect situation, you put, you know, call it 50,000, 100,000 into the property and you increase the property by enough that you can pull that money right back out. So the idea is to give you, you know, some solid numbers. Again, you buy it at three, you put 100 into it, that's, you're into it for four, but at the end of the day, the property is worth six, right? So, if you're now, if you go back to the bank and say the property's worth six, you can probably pull that $100,000 that you put into it back out of the property and reuse that again. That's the BRR strategy at its finest. And that's how you keep going and using that money. And I know here's the other objection because I know a lot of people have talked about this before. Okay, well, Willie's got $100,000. I don't have $100,000. I can't run the BRR strategy. No, Willie doesn't. He doesn't have $100,000 sitting in a bank account chilling. That's private money. That's using your connections. That's using going out there and having a portfolio, showing people what you're doing, hopping on stuff like this and putting your name out there. And then people say, Well, how do I invest with you, right? I got $100,000 sitting in a 401k or a self directed IRA that I'd love to tap into, lend to you. I say, Okay, I'll give you 8% on your money. That's more than you're getting in the stock market right now, 10% on your money, more than you're getting in the stock market right now. They say, Cool, well, I use that money for six months, do what I got to do give them their money back. And now I'm basically sitting on a three family property that I bought with no money out of my own pocket whatsoever. That's a little deeper. That's a little deeper. That's the next level stuff. I mean, you maximize those conventional loans as much as you possibly can. But then the next level is that BRR, you know, buy, renovate, pull the money back out and turn that and just keep going. And then again, if you tap into the private money side, then your problem is deal sourcing because now you could do as many lent deals as you want. You just gotta find the right properties to actually go out there and flip. So I do want to
2: ask one thing. So you said you could get the commercial financing for properties, properties. as long as they're in your LLC.
18: Could you tell people a little bit more about that process? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, dude, this is the uh, y'all gonna get me deep right now. This is what this is what wealth building is all about, man. This is where you take it and your portfolio just explodes. When I found this out, because we get it on a smaller level, right? You know, my mother and my aunts and everything else used to do this, right? So when your Comcast bill get cut off, right, and your Comcast bill is like four hundred dollars, I don't know if y'all have Comcast, but your cable bill down there, whatever the cable company is, or your electricity bill get cut off, people used to do it, and they used to be like, well, my daughter don't she, that has a clean social security number, right? So I'm gonna go throw the electricity bill in her name and get it turned back on. So it's the same exact concept just on a professional scale, right? So when I go start an LLC, it's 123 Main Street, that LLC is I'm going to start it up and put the LLC together. And I usually name it after the property that I'm going to buy, right? 123 Main Street or whatever it is. It has a separate tax ID on it. So I go get a... uh, You can pull this up on irs.gov. You can go get a new business identification number in two minutes. So now I have a separate entity. And the commercial loans, they don't care. Commercial bank is gonna say, as long as the property makes sense, as long as the property's cash flow and you can get the rents from it, we'll loan that LLC, that brand new LLC money to buy that property and fix it up and hold on to it. And to tell you the truth, they would actually rather do that because when you own a property in your individual name and you live there, it's harder to get you out and foreclose on that property if you don't pay. Bank is like, hey, if that commercial loan, you don't pay us, we're just gonna take the property. You know what I'm saying? So, and the sweetest thing about this is, and I'm sorry, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent no, you know, here, little right? right? But the best thing about this is, is when you start to establish other businesses, right? Because even if you hold that, that 123 Main Street LLC, it's got a separate tax ID. The cool thing about it is, is that tax ID is just like a kid, right? It gets older and it starts to get credit. You sign, you co-sign on it initially, but then you start to build credit with that LLC. And then eventually that kid grows up and it goes out and gets his own credit. It gets his own credit cards. It gets his own line of credit. And then, but you're in control of that kid, right? It's actually better than having a kid because your kid's gonna have his own thinking and own understanding and want to go do things and get married. This kid, you can control whatever he does or she does, right? So you start to use that credit to leverage yourself to go get even more assets, right? It's a snowball effect. It's a just a game, crazy. man. It's just a game <laughs> with a whole bunch of layers. This is crazy, man. But that's where the books is coming in, man. I talked to y'all a little bit before we started. I was like, I'm sitting here writing, and I'm like you know, what I thought was going to be one book turned into a three book series is cash flow secrets, business secrets. Cash flow secrets is all about maximizing that that conventional lending, right? Getting that from one to ten units. And then after you do that is turning it into a real business. It's using the LLCs. It's using the, you know, the LLCs and tax IDs to build that portfolio. And then wealth secrets is all about bringing it back home, five two nine plans, preparing for the future, wills. How do you use land trust? How do you use living trust to make sure? So one of the things, and again, I'm off on a you know complete tangent, but one of the things I like about the living trust is you can um and this is one of the things that my grandmother, if I could take it back for a second, one of my things my grandmother didn't do when she passed, she didn't have a will in place. When she passed, we found like three separate wills around the house that she had handwritten with separate dates and they didn't really make sense. And here in Massachusetts, you have to have it notarized or it's not legal. So it was chaos. People coming out of the woodworks, trying to collect things and trying to, this is mine, I want the clothes and all this other stuff. So one of the things I promised my wife and I promised my family we would do is we would put some things in place to make sure that that never happened to us. So part of that is a will and then a living trust. A living trust says, I can now dictate how my money is used long after I'm gone, right? So a living trust basically says, hey, I got a $500,000 in trust for my two kids. Little Willie can't have um, more than $200,000 or $100,000 by the time he turns 21. The other $100,000 will not leave the trust unless he graduates from college. Once he turns 35, he can get the last $200,000 um, or, you know what I'm saying, you could dictate it in any way you want long after you're gone. I could be dead for 20 years and still being di- you're still dictating how my money is spent um, long. And that's what the living trust does. It allows you to make sure if you die and you have two heirs, right? You don't want your 19-year-old. And don't disrespect anybody's 19, because I was a pretty mature kid at 19. But you don't want your 19-year-old kid getting a half a million dollars that you just, you know, worked your whole life to build up, and now he's or she's chilling with it. The living trust basically says you can kind of dictate. Hey, you got to graduate from college. Everybody loves McDonald's fries, so yes, you accused your
0: mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light.
18: Ba da ba ba ba. You got to get out of high school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I want you to, you know, not get a bulk of it at 25. I want you to actually get some of it at 35 to make sure that this money lasts over your lifetime. Mm-hmm. You can even say, hey, you can never sell this piece of property. You have to invest in real estate and take out a family business or you won't get any of this, you know, this stuff. So my wife and I kind of went out and said, here are the things that we want to do. If we get hit by a bus tomorrow, we can put these things in place. And obviously, they'll change over time and everything like that. But at least if something happens to us, those assets are in place for us.
7: Hey, man, that's crazy. And that's the true power of wealth.
18: Now, this was the lit
1: because... So mind you, remember all of that money that I told y'all that I walked away from the closing table with, right? Mm-hmm. I had been, like I say, studying you know, real estate, the stock market, all of these different things before I even bought my first property. So I'd seen, I was sitting on all of this cash, just liquid as hell, on top of me generating monthly income from the property, like, go put this in the stock market. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, ding, 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 ding. because I'm like, what am I going to do with all of this money? I'm not like, just leave it in the bank. I'm, gonna, I'm not, definitely not going to put it in the bank. Right. I'm going to put this in the stock market. So I jumped immediately right into the stock market. S&P 500, sector ETFs, energy ETFs, healthcare ETFs, technology ETFs. Apple stock, dividend-paying funds, just like you know what I mean. Just really diversifying where I was putting my money and shit up because I had been reading Kiplinger's magazine and Warren Buffett books and just all of these different things that told me what to do when you do decide to get in the stock market. And at the time that I got in the stock market, 2015, stock market was bussing. The stock market was bussing. So from 2015 up into 2018, I turned like 16 grand into like. Because what I ended up doing was pulling that money so that we can get the second property. So Mm -hmm. now this is the story with the second property. So we doubled back with my girl at the time. And this process was way harder than my process, y'all. When I tell y'all, we looked at probably 10 different properties, had probably five different contracts. We almost lost $10,000 in earnest money. Like It was just like, we got... Tested, we got tried, like we got drugged through the mud with this second property though. But at the end of the story, y'all gonna understand why I was worth it. So, like, we went through all of these different things, man. And we were looking in these particular neighborhoods where the properties were 300, 400 grand, you know what I mean? We were just trying to max out with the number that NACA told us was the max. And that's another note if you're listening to this, whatever they tell you the max is with NACA, that is not the max. Like, it's not. Like, whatever the rents are generating on a property, that will determine the max that you can afford on a property, not what they tell you the max is. So don't listen to that shit. So when they tell you your max is $400,000, go and find you something that's $850,000. As long as the rent can, uh, you know what I'm saying, cover that mortgage mm-hmm. and what you make can cover that, you can get that. Like So don't ever limit yourself. You know what I mean? And I learned this through this process. So like I said, we was looking for whatever they say on the limit was four units for 300, $400,000, man, every deal went south, every deal went south, every deal went south. Like I say one deal, we almost lost $10,000 in earnest money but it just so happens that a few days before the contract was up and we almost lost it because we couldn't get the appraiser to go through. This shit just wouldn't appraise out. Like no matter what we did, no matter how we worked the numbers, it just would not appraise out. And they was holding on to our earnest money. And um, we was just sick. So maybe like a week, a few days before the contract was up, bro. Like, and I hate to say this, but it had to be God. Somebody broke into the property, bro, and stole all of the pipes and shit out of the property, and that made the contract null and void because mm. the property was damaged. So we got all our bread back, and we was able to start looking again. So, mm. at, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So at this point. We go back into the mortgage office, and it's this girl up in there, and I hear her talking to my mortgage counselor about how she's looking for a property that's $650,000. When I heard that the limit was only $434,000, I'm like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I go in after her, and I'm like, Jamil, what's up? And he's like, "Um, what's up? I'm like, what's she talking about? She can... Find a property for $650,000? He's like, yeah, she got one under contract. I'm like, so why this whole time I've been thinking that you could only get one for $450,000? He was like, man, I don't know. I'm sorry, all that shit. I should have told you. I'm like, well, listen, it's up from here. Like, I'm going to start looking at Logan Square, Wicker Park, Bucktown. These are like the high-end areas where like the young, rich people is living at in Chicago right now. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, well, I'm going to start going up north. He was like, all right, if you find something, let me know. And from there, man, the journey went on for million dollar multi-units, man. And the first one we looked at, it was cool. We put an offer in on it, we got beat out. The second one, this is the craziest shit in the world. We put an offer on it. The people told us no, walked away from us. We went and looked at two or three properties. Then we looked at the one that we live in now that we found, the second one. We got a contract on this property, right? And then the people from the property who told us no to our offer, they called us back and said, you know what, we want to take y'all offer. So now we had to decide like, oh, man, which one we want. So the difference in properties were that one was a three unit. It was generating beautiful amounts of rent. The price on it was kind of high, but they was going to give us a decent amount of money back. And the one that we were in now that we ended up getting, it was a four unit. It was a three unit building in the front. And a big beautiful coach house in the back, like big, beautiful coach house where you can like see the city skyline, all of these things, and the house is like deck the fuck out. It's amazing. So this is considered a four unit. So this is a building in the front and a house in the back on the same lot. Hmm. So I'm just like, she it make it make sense. Like let's go for the one that got the house on the lot. <laughs> like that just makes sense to me. So that's the one we ended up going after. That's the one we ended up getting. And with this deal, we had to come off a whole lot of cash. We had to get the seller to work with us and everything played out. So the seller had to give us a big chunk of cash, which we used to buy the interest rate down to 0.8%, which is what made the mortgage affordable. Again, yeah, y'all heard that right. 0.8% interest rate, boy, on a million (laughs) dollars. You hear me? Let them know. I'm out here doing that shit. That's a 0.8% interest rate on a million dollar property. You heard? Yeah. Like, NACA, NACA did that. So anybody telling you anything bad about NACA, tell them get the fuck on. <laughs> NACA did that for us. Let him know. As you long know? as the cash flow justifies as is long going. as it justifies, you legit. So dude gave us the money back, and we needed to come up with 70 grand on our own. So I had some bread. She had saved up her 20 grand that she needed to save up. And then I'm like, man, where am I going to get the rest of the money from? Oh, yeah, you got $25,000 in the stock market that you done profited shit. 13 grand from, go ahead, and pull that. And I pull all of that out. No fees, no penalties. When you got a cold-ass accountant, they write that shit up like bing, 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 bing. Get <laughs> you know <what> <laughs> up out of there. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I ain't had no fees, no penalties on me pulling anything out of my, you know what I mean, stocks, uh, Roth IRA, none of that. So, man, we cashed out on that deal, bro. And we made two deals, $1.4 million worth of assets with $70,000 of our own money. That is shit. $1.23 million worth of equity we sitting on, pretty hey. much.
7: Yeah.
1: On top of the shit going up. You know what I'm saying? It's not going down because I'm adding value to the properties again. Like keep in mind, I'm upgrading there's people moving out and you know, fixing on roofs and all of these different things. And I'm do all of this stuff on my Instagram too, because I'm starting to do a lot more um video and just like visual insight of like what it takes to be a landlord and all of the different things you're gonna have to deal with and go through as a landlord. And um yeah, I'm building equity in these places, man. This shit is skyrocketing in value because of the neighborhoods that they're in. So the equity is going to keep going up. And on top of that, man, both of these motherfuckers is cash flowing. Like, I'm not spending no money out of my pocket for them. They're taking care of themselves. In the one four unit, the first four unit, I'm making profit on that because somebody moved in the one that I live in. It's my best friend. You know what I'm saying? But mm-hmm. still, like, I had to protect the asset by putting somebody in there that I knew because now I could tell you, like, yeah, you ain't supposed to move out. But get the fuck out of here. Y'all ain't got, like, no security team that's <laughs> I was just about to ask you doors, <laughs> Like yo Who live here right now Like as long as the mortgage is getting paid They don't give a fuck Like you know what I'm saying And after you close You're not even really dealing with NACA no more You're just dealing with your bank Like so if you got Citibank, Bank of America That's who they deal with As far as the financing goes with are NACA, Citibank and Bank of America hmm. So they definitely not sending no motherfuckers out Knocking on your doors Motherfucking driving past your house Seeing if you still live there Checking the mailbox to see if your name on it any of that type of stuff, as long as you're paying your mortgage. So all of that stuff about you got to live that forever and all that, it's not necessarily true if you do things the right way. Don't be not paying your mortgage moving out, doing a whole bunch of dumb shit, letting motherfuckers sell dope out your building and all that type of shit. You know what I'm saying? But when you do things the right way, handle your business the right way, man, it's ways around everything.
2: Yeah. A lot of people, they watch HGTV and they right. enjoy watching it and like they love the real estate thing. Right, but they'll right. never take the action like you did and go out and actually learn. So right. what was the moment, like, whenever you was like, man, to hell with just watching this shit. Let me just go and do I got it. You. I got you. I got
12: you. I'm ready right now. I'm ready for that question. You had me jump before you even asked me. So pretty much how it happened with me, man. I actually made a decision that most people make in life. They actually take the amount of money that they make. You know you know what I'm saying? They actually, in, they actually live in life off of, you know, income. Like, you know, from hard-earned income versus living life off of passive income, like from rental property or something like that. So, I, the money that I made off a commission check, I saved about two or three checks, and I went and bought me a BMW 750 Li Cash. You can go down on my Instagram page and you'll see it. I bought the car. I put a little work into it. And I drove it for a while. And I was like, man, now I'm going backwards. I just now took X amount of money out of my account, and I know my overall goal is to invest. So I started finding myself going backwards, just like everybody else do. You, you can't do that. So pretty much what I ended up doing, man, I sold my BMW, $18,000 cash. At the time, I was getting ready to close on two other deals by helping somebody buy real estate. I was getting paid 3% off of that. So I was probably about to get $6,000 off each one of those checks. I took that eighteen, dollars added that twelve dollars to it. I was sitting with about maybe $27,000, $28,000 in my account. I went to another real estate meetup my dude marlin i went to his meetup and i said hey look uh i'm ready to like teach me something because right now i'm kind of i'm at a, i'm at a dead end i got the funds i know how to analyze a property i just can't find one so he was like all right look come down our meet up so i went to his meetup and i guess he thought i was just like the typical guy i went in there they couldn't get a question off everybody else in that room and i was in there with kd That's where me and KD actually got back like merged and connected with each other from that day. He's sitting right right across me. Every time they ask a question, I got it. Ask another. I got it. I got it. I got it. So I kept asking all of their questions because I had been studying it for two or three years. I'm like, man, this has been a beginner class. I don't need beginner classes. I know how to analyze a property. I got the funds. I need a deal. I don't need nothing else. She teach me how to find a deal. So after the meeting was over with, I went up to him and I said, hey, look, I ain't gonna lie. I feel like you bullshitting me today. (laughs) (laughs) I got the money to do a deal. I know how to analyze a property. This was a beginner's class. I need a property. He was like, well, look, I'm gonna tell you and I'll tell this to anybody else. And it's so true. He said, the reason why you do not have a deal today is because you have not got in front of enough people. What he meant by that was... Uh, other and other uh, investors, other real estate agents that know how to find these properties, other wholesalers, all of these extra things. But just note that I sold my my sold my BMW. After selling that BMW, I dumped every dollar you can think of, even up to this point. I'm broke every day because if I make five hundred thousand dollars a day, I'm dumping four hundred and ninety thousand of it back into my business because I don't care about a dollar because I know how to live dirt poor. My monthly expenses is $1,400. Mm,
8: damn.
12: My monthly expenses is $1,400. So I'm cool. So if I make $100,000, I can live for seven more years right now without doing nothing else for the rest of my life.
7: Talk to him. Let him know. That's, that's, how, you, that's how we
12: live, man. We got to stop living above our means. Live be long, baby. Let's eat, man. Let's go. But that's pretty much how I got started in real estate, man. I sold that, that dream car of mine. And uh, I, I took the cash from it and dumped it into my first investment property, in which I profited $27,000 at the time. And it's, it's just been up and up from there, man. It's been up and up from there.
2: And I'm glad you y'all mentioned in Baltimore, because that's something I really wanted to, to get into, because y'all talking about like all these, these blighted properties and all this. So can y'all kind of give people some insight on what the Baltimore housing market look like? Because I know it's some opportunities out there. Y'all talking about getting 220 rentals for y'all next-gen program. <laughs> <laughs>
11: Absolutely, Yeah, so the Baltimore market is, it's a beautiful thing. People nationwide, worldwide are hearing about it and all the changes that are happening in Baltimore. We were talking to a long-term developer who has been in the game for 40 plus years. And he said over, over his time and seeing all the changes across his 40 years, right now there's the most development and most activity, north, south, east, west, central, than he's ever seen before, which is great. So a few things. Baltimore used to be a million person city and now we're down to about 600,000 people. So there's literally not enough people as it stands right now to fill the housing stock that's available. So a lot of the money from the state and the city and federal has been used to demo houses, create green space, create public spaces, create more parking, and generally rehab and develop different areas. But with that said, there's still not quite enough people. So there's all kinds of incentives to buy into Baltimore City. They've got all kinds of like tons of grants to help with closing costs, to help with down payment assistance, so much so that a lot of people, if they're not walking away from the table with a check, they've bought down their mortgage and their, their interest rates so low that you really you can't beat it. I mean, people in areas where you used to pay $1,300 for, for rent, $1,200 for rent, people are buying houses and having mortgages paying $850, $950 just based on programs like Vacants to Value, where there's a thousand dollars grant. Live Baltimore, $5,000 Trolley Tour grant. Live Near Your Work programs for all these different hospitals and institutions. And Baltimore City as a whole has a Live Near Your your Work program also, $2,500. Johns Hopkins, $17,000. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, That's crazy. and And all of these programs and all these grants are stackable. Right, so you get ten thousand plus the seventeen from Hawkins plus five from this plus twenty five hundred from that. Next thing you know, you've gone to the table and you ain't even have to write a check. It's crazy how much development oh. is happening
19: here. It's insane. It's
11: I gotta insane. live there to do this, right? Yeah.
19: Well, so these are owner-occupied grants. So this is the, one of the first couple of things. We had there. You were like, they're you know, investors come in. Well, what grants can I get I'm like since They're not paying you to make the money, but you can use these same grants for multi so you think about how packing you buy a multi-family you take advantage of all these owner-occupied grants and that's how you i mean in all honesty that's how you really start to do some really dope stuff because you're not paying any money to buy a house for somebody else to pay your mortgage right think about what that means for your monthly expenses what you can save and then you can go ahead buy whatever the hell you want right and so for example i'll use the example for what was is talking about right so we had a house one that we had done ourselves um, and had listed for like two thirty or whatever, and the buyer got the ten thousand dollars vacant value grant because the house was vacant when we bought it. It was vacant for over a year, so it qualified for that. Five thousand dollars for the Live Baltimore Trolley Tour. They do it quarterly. You go, you get entered into a raffle to win a five thousand dollars grant. They also had we had a tax, so we do historic tax credits, which keeps your tax as low. Well. And so all of these things like added up, right? They buy the house. They have nothing at closing costs that they have to pay. And their mortgage for this house ends up being less than $900 a month. And then they moved from D.C. to Baltimore. And so their basement, finished basement, was the size of the apartment that they were renting in D.C. for $1,800. Now they have this entire house, three beds, three and a half baths, like, you know, this beautiful, huge, brand new house right? 800 and some odd dollars a month. Like it's crazy. And so when you really get to the position where you're turning off the news and paying attention to what's actually happening on the ground in Baltimore, it's crazy, right? They're paying you to move to the city. And then there's tons to do, tons to get involved in once you get there. So it's a no brainer. That's why we're big, uh, Baltimore. We always big it up Baltimore, but for good reason.
7: That's crazy though. That's like all those opportunities, like you said, it's stackable. Like Man, and you got me on the move <laughs> <laughs> For
17: real.
19: So, right, and look, so then you come. BWI, the, the airport, is a major hub. You can go wherever you want. Right now, we're doing this podcast in three different time zones because we're all traveling, right? Like, you just, there's... When you think long-term, you start to make long-term decisions.
14: And I mean, I'm telling you, there's not many better places to be yeah man it's like so much we gotta go back hey I that. bought hey, I bought my first property online at auction dot com and I was in class looking at my professor. I'm looking at my <laughs> phone, he up there teaching, and I bought my first property and when they told me that you won the auction, I ran out the classroom. I think you probably thought I had to go to the restroom or something, but I went out. I was so excited because you said you already winning bitter, and man, I didn't know how to I didn't know how to act man after that.
2: Wow, that's crazy <laughs> bro. Man, so, I, I, one thing before we go into anything, bro, like, I know y'all just heard this amazing story, and I know y'all heard how this played out for my brother, but I don't want anybody to pass over the fuck we talking about them sacrifices, everything, them staying in your own lane, that shit's so major, man, hell yeah.
14: Yeah, it was, a, it was a real sacrifice, man, I'm talking about not buying no clothes, no shoes, not hmm. celebrating nothing. I mean, um, going to get a dollar burger if I had to, to, try to make it. My girlfriend at that time, she was on food stamps. So that's how we was, you know, I was staying, basically staying with her. You know how that worked with the food stamps, section eight, all that kind of stuff. So I was just staying with her basically. And I told her that we weren't going to be celebrating no more birthdays, no Christmas, no nothing. I mean, she my wife now, and it was all worth the sacrifice. It was all worth the grind because she was right there with me and, you know, she didn't, see, it was, it's so hard. Because the first thing other women see is that friends going on vacation and friends going on trips. And you as a man, you see your buddies going on trips and vacation and things of that nature. And you have to be so focused, man, and so aware because you got to know pretty much where you're headed. You know, where you going? And you can't worry about what your friend's telling you or what your friend's saying. Hey, man, we're going to the club tonight. Do you want to come hang out? It's a lot, man. You're going to lose some friends in the process. Because your vision is just so, is just so much out there, you know. To this, just ridiculous, and a lot of people, they never change their ways. They'll continue to live the same way over and over, year in, year out. Ten years later, they're doing the same thing, and you just, you know, you can't think the same. You have to be able to elevate yourself.
7: So, did you initially get some backlash from her from for that though? From which one? um uh, whenever you told like broke it down to like look this is what we about to do like cuz i know women i know it's it's not just that's not
14: that. right right hey let's right. do it, <laughs> yeah, it was, i mean it was not that simple i wish she was here now she actually on the way she actually headed here but um no it was a battle not too too bad but it was a battle pretty much throughout the process because we got to the point where i had to actually sit her down at the table and explain pretty much year by year, what my vision was. And once she saw, okay, man, he bought the first property. Okay, another property. Now it's another property. So she know I wasn't just sacrificing for nothing. So if you once you can see it and touch it, she then realized, this man is for real, you know? And then I wasn't, at that time, I wasn't going out buying nothing. No Gucci, no new car, no nothing. I had two old cars. I had an old Cadillac that was paid off and I had an old Taurus that was paid off. But I'm looking at these young guys and older guys, and you know, people pull up beside you. But you, you ain't this old car with no air conditioner, no heat. But it's uh, to me, it was just a sacrifice and the grind. And I mean, you look at other people; they pull up beside you in the new cars. You like, you know, I salute you. But you have a bigger vision, man. You have a bigger goal at hand. And once everything start turning, man, it was just, it was just ridiculous. It only took me really one year of sacrifice. Man, you talked about I'm, about I'm talking about analyzing everything. I mean, analyzing all your bills, the mm. bills that, that you have that don't make sense, get them out of there. It don't even matter. Live off the bare minimum, save as mm. much as you can save, and have a vision and gain knowledge at the same time while you're saving your money.
8: This man is preaching right here, Can Would you add? You talked about, like, uh, buying the property on auction.com. How did you hear about auction.com? Like, I didn't even know there was a thing that you could just go online and find an auction.
14: I think nobody never told me about auction.com. I think it was more so of uh, going online and uh, checking out just online auctions, see if that even exists. Mm-hmm. And then once I find out, when I find out about auction.com. I find out about hubzu.com. I find out about exome.com. Find out about Hudson and So it's a lot of online platforms that a lot of older investors they don't deal with as far as in my markets. A lot of time when I bid on properties online, it's pretty much me and maybe one other person. You know, it's it's not it's not a whole lot of competition. And I think that's so beautiful because you're not dealing with agents. You're not dealing with a real estate agent that can up the price because they want a higher commission. These are basically just what the bank want. They want their reserve met. And a lot of times you can get properties without the reserve being met. Reserve is pretty much what the lowest the bank will take for it. And you will see that on auction.com, you know, once you sign up.
7: So how did you learn? Like what made you say, okay, real estate is the way I want to get out. And what did that, that self-educating process look like for you?
14: So I say real estate was going to be my way. So man, I just remember sitting in the car crying and trying to figure out what I can do with my life. Because basically I was playing uh minor league baseball before I hurt my shoulder. And um, I always just wanted to get back to that mold, to that level. And, and I know that the biggest thing out there would have been real estate. You know, that's the biggest thing to me at that time. in my way of thinking it wasn't no other career that I could get into that would be able to put me in a position. I mean, now as far as basically being retired, you know, but I just went for it, man. I mean, I just went for it and, and I had confidence in learning and I just knew where I wanted to be. You know, I knew I wanted out of life and it wasn't working a job, you know, until I'm 62 or 63. That was just that was just something that I didn't want to do. You
3: know.
7: What you got, Jed?
3: I also I, I have a question about it. So when you uh when you were telling us a story earlier, you were saying that you rented your house out the first run allowed to Section 8. What mm. made you want to do Section 8 versus just regular conventional ring it up? Because a lot of people, you know, they have, you know, preconceived notions, let me put it like that, about Section 8 renters. Right, right. To be honest with you, I think maybe that was at that time
14: was like a first come, first serve type deal. And she pretty much called me up and she said, I got a voucher. And the voucher is $700 a month. And she told me she had a voucher. She came out, looked at the property. Then the Section 8 people, they came out to uh, make sure the house met code and all that good stuff. And that was pretty much it, man. I just went with it, you know. Um, more so like a first come, first serve. I felt like the uh, Section 8 tenants was already screened by Section 8 already. And they already was admitted into the program. So I just went ahead and just, just went with it. I think it was more so first person that could put some money in my pocket. Let's see how, you know how we can get this thing started type deal.
2: There and I like that mentality because that's something that a lot of people are scared to do whenever with a lot of stuff. Like, just especially in real estate, they're scared to take that first deal with their money, just trying to opt for looking for better, looking for more, trying to get greedy. Like, mm-hmm. man, fuck it. Just whoever is the first person that got it, let me take it, let me get my feet wet so I know what I'm doing.
14: Right, right. And I'm going to be honest with you guys that tenant is stealing to that property right now. Damn. And how she, only long ago paid, was that? she only paid. She only paid two hundred and eleven dollars a month,
7: Damn. but
14: Section Eight paid the rest for. Her.
7: That's crazy. So, like, how long ago was that? How many years ago?
14: This is about eight years ago. Man, eight years ago. And the thing is, I take care of my tenants. Man, it's crazy. I take care of them. Christmas time come. Depends if they rent a whole year and pay their rent on time. Christmas time, I don't charge them at all. Let them have the whole month off for Christmas, so they can That's use that money for the kids you know that's cool. and that's pretty much the agreement that i have pretty much with all the tenants if i don't have no in other words if i had to spend a whole lot of money on you and you making your money uh your rent on time paying your rent on time you get the whole month off of december you know and they love that i treat them with the utmost respect anytime we're having the problems issues anytime i get a phone call i mean i have somebody there johnny on the spot getting a job done getting it fixed and you know, they just appreciate, I don't look at them as tenants. I look at them as an extended family (laughs) because I wouldn't want to live in somewhere that's treated like a dump. I wouldn't want to stay in nowhere where this person don't come fix nothing or help me, you know, help with certain things. So I look at it the same way. You know, a lot of people look at it a little bit different, but to me I look at it as if these are their houses, but at the same time we got an agreement that I take care of them and I you know, I keep the maintenance up and I manage it, you know, it's just a partnership. It does, it's doing both of us. Well, you guys are paying me rent every month and I'm giving you guys a very nice place to stay, you know, every month. So it's just working hand in hand.
7: Hey, I love it, bro. So now I want to kind of get into the business side of the real estate. So how many okay. doors do you, did you say you have now? Uh, 28. So you got 28 doors. So, and you say you personally manage everything yourself, right?
14: Well, me and my assistant, I got uh, one assistant that pretty much handles a lot of groundwork, but yeah, for the most part, yeah.
7: Okay, so you pretty much just integrated straight through the company where you just take care of everything. So what does that look like on a normal day-to-day basis? If you just would say, what a regular day, if you did have one, what does that look like for someone who would say, man... I kind of want to do what he's doing. I want to live like Josh, but they don't actually know. They just see the glamour side. What would that actual business side look like?
14: Well, of course, the other side of the, of the coin would be a lot of uh, repairs that needs to be done. And don't get me wrong. I have a couple of crews and I have a couple of handyman that I can call. But then at some times, they may be tied up on another job or another project and maybe they can't get there right then and there on the spot. So, I mean, me having to call three or four uh, other, you know, qualified handlemen that I work with to be able to, you know, fix and address a problem or issue. I tenants move out of properties. Sometimes they can leave them a, a complete mess. I'm talking about, I've seen maggots in refrigerators that you have to clean out, carpets that have to be pulled out because of, you know, a, a real bad smells. I mean, you know, the list goes on. Um, Sometimes if a tenant is late with rent, you know, filling out uh, eviction notices, just different little things, you know, you have your ins and outs. Now, one good thing is I don't have to deal with that uh, quite often, but you know, you have to to be there to kind of manage certain things or have somebody in place to manage certain things. You know, at one point, um, I almost got my insurance taken off one of my properties because I didn't realize the tenant had so much Trash and debris and stuff in the backyard, to you know, even a situation like that where your insurance company will call you and say, basically, we're going to get rid of your insurance if you know um, we don't get the debris and all that kind of stuff you know cleaned up, fixed up, you know. So it's a um, you got to treat it, I mean, you got to treat it like a business and you got to make sure that you know all your properties in good standing, good shape, especially section eight properties. And that's pretty much it, man. I mean, it's. It's, if you have your good days, you can have your bad days. But for the most part, my good days overdo my bad days because I can sit home and not have nothing to do. And for the most part, I don't work on my properties personally. A lot of times when I do my fix and flips, I may drive to my properties and I'll do, you know, certain things. I may pressure wash my own house or do certain little things to kind of cut costs. But for the most part, you know, I'm I'm pretty much free, man. Just ride around and look at properties. <laughs> hit the gym you know things like that
7: thank you for tuning in to this episode of the bwr podcast if you enjoy these clips please scroll down to the show notes and check out the timestamps so you can go listen to the full episodes also be sure to sign up for the youtube party you don't want to miss out once again like i said we'll be having cash prizes previous guests you'll even be able to get some of your questions that you have answered this will all be done via zoom and youtube live we hope to see you next week this is Jalen from blackwell friend of science signing out peace When something happens to your kitchen, you might say,
8: This is ludicrous.